Welcome to Jodowowski, a podcast devoted to the life and work of actor, writer, poet, playwright, novelist, editor, comics writer, musician, puppeteer, mime, painter, and so much more, including director Alejandro Jodorowsky. I'm Doug Tilly, and on this episode, we're looking at a triple feature of Jodorowsky written comic work, starting with 1992's Moonface, illustrated by Francois Bouc, then moving on to his erotic work Angel Claws, illustrated by the great Mobius, and finishing with the ultraviolent Son of the Gun, illustrated by the incredible George Bess. Joining me on this journey are two wonderful co-hosts. First up is my usual collaborator on Cinema Smorgasbord Podcast. It's our own Juan Solo, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I think I'd rather be Moonface, honestly, <laughs> if I have to choose. <laughs> Look deep into yourself, Liam, and you know that you're actually Juan Solo. Oh, God, I hope not. Um, you know, I'm good. I'm, I'm good, Doug. It's, get, it's getting close to my birthday, so I'm trying yeah. to get stoked. Trying to yeah. get stoked on getting old, you know? Yeah, well, look, we're all getting older. Even as we're just sitting here talking about Alejandro Jodorowsky, we're getting a little older. Liam, before we started recording, you mentioned some hesitancy about the comic work that we're going to be talking about today. I just want to tell you, buddy, it's going uh -huh. to be okay. It's there's going to be fine. It's just there's a lot of layers, and I, it's not hesitancy. You said, are you excited? I said, I'm excited, and I'm not excited. I'm excited because I think it's really interesting. I'm not excited in the sense that all three of these are challenging and not that his other comic work hasn't been challenging, but I actually think this was an interesting um, pairing that you made, or I guess it's not pair like triple co uh, combination you made, Doug, because sure. I think these all have somewhat similar themes, mm -hmm. but in very different directions. And I think that that's interesting. Uh, but I, I, unlike some of the other things we've discussed, I feel a little bit more like, not that I can get it wrong, because if someone really got mad at us for something we said, I'd be like, <laughs> all right, blow off. But it's more like I want to take it seriously while also having fun. You know yes. what I mean? I don't want to get so serious that the conversation gets boring. But, I, you know, I, ca I care about some of this stuff a little bit, even as these are some wild fucking comments, comments <laughs> guys. Like, these are out there. It's about their shit. We're, we're going to try to maintain a light tone, right? This is meant to be something that is comfortable for people who are new to Jodorowsky and people who love his work as deeply and as intimately as we do. And with us, as always, on Jodorowsky is the wonderful writer-director, Julia Marchesi. Julia, how are you today? Oh, I'm just excited. Good to talk about Jodorowsky today. It's so nice to be able to come back every few months get together, you know, get our Jodorowsky pants on and really kind of dive into both what's been going on in his life and also some of his, you know, I think under-celebrated, at least in the West, works. These are That's one of the things that's been difficult about the comics work in particular, and really especially outside his Jodoverse stuff, is that there just isn't a lot written in English out there about a lot of this. So, you know, usually I have resources that I'm trying to share with the two of you. Uh, and and this time, I'm, I mean, even finding mentions of some of these comics, even though obviously he poured his heart and soul and so these these artists did as well, it can be a little uh, difficult. It makes me feel a little unruttered. How about you there, Julia? I think this is a good opportunity for us to learn Spanish and French, right? I uh, think so. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's going too far. It's never far enough. How, <laughs> how deep is your love for Jodo? Yeah, Liam. Apparently, apparently not deep enough. <laughs> if Jodorowsky can learn multiple languages, I don't see why we can't. Or at the very least, Liam, you learn Spanish, I'll learn French. Uh, of course, Julia can learn both. And then we'll have I'm, I'm studying Japanese. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, I do think there's something going on there, Doug, with it seems to me, as a, as a more of a casual comics person, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm an expert, but you know, it is a world that I dabble in. I feel like French comics only get heat in the U.S., when they appear in heavy metal, that like French 
stuff, even stuff that's put out on uh, what's the humanoids, yeah. it doesn't always get the attention over here it deserves unless it's featured in heavy metal. And I, I think is heavy metal still publishing? So that's the thing. I I don't think it is anymore. So I wonder if I wonder if if it's only the internet that gets new stuff out of Europe in in front of uh, American audiences, or if there are other venues. But like all the you know Yodo stuff that like seems to have some people writing about it in the US is all stuff that appeared in heavy metal or has a connection to stuff that appeared in heavy metal. I mean, I think you're mostly right. I also think that the publishing history of a lot of this stuff is a little bit messy. Yeah. My understanding yeah, 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 is yeah. that, you know, these things were published in issues that were, you know, we know how Jodorowsky works, sometimes months, years apart, and then they are then collected and not translated for years and years. That is one of the nice things about Humanoids in its current form is that a lot of these Jodorowsky works are uh, arriving in English, collected in these beautiful formats for the first time. So, I mean, it is an opportunity, I think, for scholarship around a lot of this work. But it's uh, it's interesting just, you know, considering that Jodorowsky is both a big name, obviously, in film and, and other work. But certainly in comics, people do recognize that he is a force in it. And there's just so much, you know, we could focus exclusively on his comics and do another, you know, mm -hmm. 10 episodes. I've, I, I've, I can't stop, won't stop. That's what yeah. I, 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 I mean. I mean, the thing is, is that I've seen copies of the In Call all over the place in stores. I've seen uh, uh, collections of the Meta Barons in stores. Sure. But some of the other stuff we've covered, I've never seen anywhere. And, you know, I'm again, I'm not saying I'm the expert or anything. It's just interesting how some of the stuff seems to have a lot of traction so that I would hear about it. And some of this stuff, when you say, oh, we're going to be covering this, I'm like, I had never even heard of that. Never even seen this art before. That's That's interesting to me, you know. Before we get into these comics, I do have a few brief announcements to mention regarding uh, Jodorowsky and his clan. Uh, specifically, he recently went to Switzerland to do a little talk at Monte Verita. Uh, it, it says here in the article that I have, the writer, filmmaker, and tarot master was the guest of honor at the 11th edition of the Literary Festival held every year in the Monte Verita, where a pioneer alternative community was created 120 years ago. However, he said, there is no space for surrealism in Switzerland. I actually mentioned this <laughs> mostly. He actually... I love that they bring in Jodorowsky as like this celebratory figure and he just kind of insults the Swiss while he's there. <laughs> he says, the problem of the Swiss is that they carry the weight of the economic reality. To establish anything at all, they need a certain dose of perfect security, but life is not about perfect security. Life is made of the risks we take. I mostly brought up this, not only because he doesn't do a lot of, I think, traveling to uh, to talks these days, but also to get a sense of what he's like now, uh, you know, because he ha doesn't do so many talks. One of the things it mentions here is that he apologized for his impaired hearing when asked repeatedly for more details, uh, you know, things like um, things about his own past. But then he just skipped the questions and let his thoughts follow further in a mix of French and Spanish as he reveled in sharing his impressions of Switzerland. I just like the idea that even... Uh, you know, with, with certain aspects of him, we know he's had difficulty with his vision and perhaps his hearing here. Hey, he's just going to go his own way when it comes to discussing things here. <laughs> uh, how far, Liam and Julia, would you be willing to travel in, in a reasonable situation to see Jodorowsky speak at this point? Well, I saw him in L.A. at the Egyptian Theater. I know theater. you did. Um, so I didn't have to travel. I traveled about five blocks is how far I traveled. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, about five blocks on foot, but with with with, with great joy. Um, if I could get a tarot reading by him, I would Ooh. fly to Paris immediately now. Interesting. Like right away. I'd be like, yep, 
because I'm he, he's he's like a guru to me and he doesn't have very much time left. God bless him. I love him. Don't please don't ever die. He's going to be a moral. I love you, Joe Dorowski. But I would if I got a tarot reading or could just have a meeting with him, I would fly to wherever he was right away. How about yourself, Liam? Now, let's say either for an hour long talk by Joe Dorowski or uh, or a one on one tarot reading. How far would you go? I mean, you know, we've told the story on here before that friend of the show, Sean Porter, took a bus from Philadelphia to Toronto to see him sure. at a film fest, which is amazing to me. Um, I mean, that seems. I mean, that seems like the least you would do, don't you think? Well, I actually, mean, the five blocks would be the least you could do. But you yeah, know, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I'm assuming we're saying in a world where money isn't the problem, right? Because yeah, and your family isn't holding you back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, yeah, I, I think I would travel, I think I would actually travel internationally if I could make a whole, like, I don't think I would do like a one-off, like, I'm going to fly to another country and then fly back the next day. I think yeah, that would yeah, be too yeah, much. Right. Uh, but in the, in the country, assuming I could, you know, pay off whatever, I could see myself flying to another part of the country for him just to do it because that while that is tiresome it's not so tiresome to feel like it wasn't worth it uh i think internationally it'd be more have to be part of like a big thing i was doing just because i find that much time on a plane to be torture so i'd want to i'd want to i want to be able to like hang out for a bit before i had to come home recently rolling stone magazine interviewed uh adam jodorowsky who we've talked about on several uh, episodes recently we know that he has recently released an album under the name adanowski uh this is actually a very interesting interview it's more about him than i knew previously regarding his uh, musical career uh, particularly the idea that he's kind of taken on these different personalities in these albums that he's released including i think one recently or, or several years ago at this point where he like performed in drag and then he was getting in touch with his feminine side but he sometimes uses these different names in this case adonowski we listened to the karen o song last time he does mention his father in this interview he talks about the kind of pressure about growing up a jodorowsky and the interviewer asks him about it. He says, my grandfather was a Ukrainian underwear salesman who lived in a working class neighborhood in Chile. He was a classic 1920s chauvinist and used to say art was for homosexuals. But my father fought to create art. He met my mother, who was a Mexican actress, and I was born soon after. I grew up in a house with purple walls, dressed in purple, and riding in a purple car. When they started taking students who also dressed in purple, people thought the Jodorowsky family was a cult. I had a peculiar childhood, surrounded by tarot, mysticism, and symbols, and my parents separated when I was eight, just as I was filming Santa Sangre. Uh, the, the interviewer goes on to say, usually when young artists come from a family with a public name recognition, they're eager to step out of the shadow of that existing legacy. How did you negotiate your father's legacy with your own identity? He says, people often think that I grew up with money, but I was raised in a lower class suburb of Paris where I played in the streets with neighborhood kids. I was shaped by rebelliousness and struggle, which is why I never wished to distance myself from that legacy. In my adolescence, my father became more famous. He became Jodorowsky, and I wondered if I could exist on my own, which is why I changed my name to Adonowski. I needed to prove to myself that I could be somebody without leaning on a surname. In the beginning, all people wanted to talk about was my father, but things change as you produce a body of work, and eventually you're measured by what you've actually done. You know, it's a really interesting interview on a number of different levels. He looks so much like his father. It's, it must be incredibly hard to distance himself. He also wears that hat, which definitely reminds you of the Holy Mountain when you see him yeah. generally. Maybe, yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. maybe he's not so, uh, so interested in that distance at this point. What do you think about this, by the way, uh, Julia, starting with you? I know that you're a big fan of, of, of what we've seen of Adonowski or Adon uh, Jodorowsky so far. Um, th th this idea that he feels like he has to distance himself a little bit from the Jodorowsky legacy. 
Uh, I mean, I think that makes sense because every rich kid or like famous kids, you know, famous person's kid always has that that pressure, right? That, sure. Like, who are they without this person? Doesn't but, want but to be I a nepo baby, right? Sure, but I think that he's come to realize that he's embracing that. Like this is part of what makes him who he is, and so he's you know his work, you know when I uh, his work in endless poetry is outstanding. Like he outstanding. I can't wait to talk about when we get about that, and so. He won my heart there, just like Brontus did um, in Dance of Reality. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, I'm on board. I'm on board. Um, and I'm also like, they're just, they just seem like actually nice people on top of everything. Like, I'm, you know what I mean? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, and very creative. And also, you know, this is an area, even though Alejandro Jodorowsky has worked in music and has done music for some of his films, this is an area where the Jodorowsky name isn't maybe as as present. And he's really carved... I mean, he's getting interviewed by Rolling Stone. And for, for those who follow him on Instagram, he seems to be incredibly successful. I don't think I had a sense of just how liked he was as a musician. I mean, collaborating with Karen O and Beck on this new album. And by the way, on this new album, there is a song about Alejandro Jodorowsky called Alejandro, uh, which is a, a, a explicitly a celebration of his father. And when, uh, when he was asked about that, he says, The Fool, which is his new album, was written and recorded before the passing of his mother and his brother Cristobal, though maybe on this next album he'll write about them. But with time, I've learned to visualize death and truly consider what we're doing on this earth. I believe we're all cells contributing to the development of a larger body, and if that is my duty, I will contribute beauty. So now I want all the art I produce to be luminous, because that's what I'm leaving behind. I was out for a walk with my son, Alion, and I told him, some people focus on the dog shit on the street, while others delight in the songbird in the trees. You need to learn to observe the miracle. And as a father, I want to give him the tools to grow spiritually. I mean, he sounds like Alejandro a little bit, don't you think? But like a super, super positive one. But it seems Yeah, like, like a like super that, positive one. That's but right. But it seems like as, as Alejandro's age, he's gotten more positive, I feel like. Although he was, I don't know, he was really rude to the Swiss, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Why not be rude to the Swiss? <laughs> Uh, I did uh, right before, like literally, in fact, even after we were supposed to record, I had both of you listen to the, uh, or watch, I should say, the latest Adam Jodorowsky video under the name Adam Adanowski. This is called Chain Reactionary. This is a, a song that he recorded with Beck. And honestly, part of the reason I had you watch it is that the music video was directed by Michelle Gondry. And I have a picture of myself drawn by Michelle Gondry right behind me right this very second. Ooh. Liam, you're a music guy. We know that uh, you were uh, the lead singer of the band Revolver Method and you love hardcore music. Um, what did you think of this song? Uh, I thought it was pretty good. It's... it's um... Not the sort of thing I listen to a lot, not because it's not hardcore, but uh, I feel like this is a style that reminds me more of a few years ago than right now. Like, mm. it, it just, it it has a very kind of laid back. Um, a Mellow. L- a little, yeah, a little bit, but but still a little upbeat, right? It's not slow. It has, it has some pace to it. It's got really fun strings on it. Uh, yeah, I liked it. it. It's very inoffensive, but I, I, I don't find I don't know that I would like go out and buy the record just from this. But I think like this made me think I kind of want to hear more of this just to hear what the rest of it is like. Compared to the Karen O song, which I thought was okay, I thought this one is something that I could really kind of dig on. I, something I really like to hear more. Of. I forgot about the Karen O song. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I think this was more interesting to me than the Karen O song. Uh, and that might have just been Beck. I think I kind of like 
even though I've never been a big Beck fan, I kind of like <laughs> his voice. I find it kind of comforting. I just don't always like all the music that he does, but uh, I kind of liked his contribute his contribution to this song in particular. So it mm-hmm. made me interested to hear more. Though I don't know that he's on any more of the record, it, it kind of brought me in a little bit. How about you, Julia? What did you think of uh, of the song? I thought it was great. I think that he his his voice and Beck's voice melt together very well, uh, which sometimes in duets they don't. Yeah, um, and of course, you know Michelle Gondry, you know it's going to be genius no matter what it is. And I think this video is really stripping down to just be just there doesn't need to be fancy stuff, and yet what he does is still fancy. Yeah, you know, like it's still something. Like, Michelle Gondry is one of those creators. I'm like, I don't know how his brain works. Like my mm-hmm. brain could never come up with. I mean, same with Jodorowsky, right? Like my brain just doesn't work that way. But that's what makes humanity great, and everybody has their own thing. But like his ability to turn something like I'm just using cardboard, or like yeah. just cutouts, and yet it's visually exciting. And I would never have come up with any of it. So always well done, and the and the music <laughs> as well. I would totally go see them in concert if if he ever comes to LA. I'm sure he will. I'll go see yeah. him and like report back. Please do. Yeah, it is. It's like paper. Yeah, it's cardboard paper animated. It feels like, kind of like a throwback to his video for "Fell in Love with a Girl," the White Stripes video made out mm-hmm. of Lego, uh, all those years ago. Uh, and yeah, I like Michelle Gondry very much. He's such a creative figure. I I, I like more of his films than probably is popular. <laughs> I even liked his Green Hornet movie. Uh, Liam, what did you think of the video and uh, and its style? It's it's animated. You know, it's funny. It's become popular over the last few years on YouTube to do. Uh, a version of a like if you do a music video you also do one that's just text right just the lyrics and sometimes those are animated this feels like kind of a melding of the two ideas i think that's true it honestly again and i don't mean this as an insult i'm just describing it it felt very a few years ago to me like <laughs> you hmm. said the same thing both yeah of it. yeah yeah are I, we all I, living a few years ago is that what's going on liam well no i just think this style there's a i'm trying to remember the term for it there's actually a style a name for it in art but uh, there was a point where a lot of things looked very handmade, you know, very much like I doodled this or I drew this or I cut this out myself. And that was a, a vibe on albums, music videos, graphic design in general. And uh, it kind of started more before the 2010s, but it, it kind of reaches height mid 2010s. And then it kind of fell out of favor. Uh, and that's how I feel about the song, too. And yet... It didn't feel, even though it reminds me of the past, it didn't feel like out of place. Like the art in the video still felt like you could see it now and it makes sense, but it reminded me of a style that is not quite as popular as it once was, if hmm. that makes sense. Can I also point out from um, uh, the industry side of it that it's very possible that the reason that it's done the way it does is because he couldn't get Beck and 100%. Yeah, to yeah, yeah, do yeah. the video. And mm-hmm. so like he worked with what he had. Um, I don't know that I don't know if that's the truth, but if he did, you know, like, okay, well, what I'm going to do with him, make this as creative as possible. So either way, I'm hundred percent happy with it. Yeah. That's well observed. That actually is almost certainly the case, yeah. uh, particularly because who knows? I mean, he could have been recording this album even during the pandemic. Uh, it's possible that they were never in the same room, even recording this song. Back a few months ago, uh, you may have remembered, actually, on our most recent episode, we talked about an interview with the Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania writer, Jeff Loveness, who talked about how that movie was going to have the visual splendor of Jodorowsky's Dune. Now, I have yet to see that movie. I know, Liam, you talked about seeing it and saying that maybe it doesn't necessarily live up to that. But that did prompt a writer at Collider.com to write an article called 
Give Alejandro Jodorowsky a Marvel budget, you cowards. Yes. Uh, this re- this uh, article really just serves as a brief history on the career of Alejandro Jodorowsky. It's written by a writer named Liam Gaughan. Uh, and But it does end with this. It says, It's unfortunately a tale as old as time that many of the greatest filmmakers are only appreciated in retrospect and never get to see their passion projects created during their lifetimes. It's rare but exciting when a filmmaker is able to bring a long-standing passion project to life during the twilight of their career, and it can lead to, to successes such as Martin Scorsese's Silence and Lynch's Twin Peaks The Return. While it's nice to see Jodorowsky's name cited by modern artists, it would be even better if he was given the chance he deserves to bring his next vision to life. Now, we know that Jodorowsky's working on another film. Yes, Julia. Uh, well, I was going to say, I, I, as you know, I just want the third in his like autobiographical series. Right, which is, uh, it seems like I, that's what he's working on. I, for, for the love of Christ, please let that be what that is. Um, but, <laughs> but he could have the Marvel-sized budget, which is the Incal, right? Which he gave to Taika Waititi. And he was like, that's I can't true. do it, it's too big. So I think that that's maybe, I mean, I, I, I applaud the sentiment and he should have had a Marvel-sized budget his entire career. But I don't know if that's what he wants right now. Yeah, I don't think that that I don't think it was likely, particularly with his age, that anyone was going to give him two hundred million dollars to make the in call. And it's probably would take a filmmaker with as much credibility like Taika Waititi to get a project like that possibly made, even though he has another five projects lined up before that one at this point. But I mean, at least even get it kind of moving in that direction. Uh, Julia, I have, I'm have. i going to end our little announcement section here uh, with a um, recent Instagram post by Alejandro Jodorowsky, as I've been doing recently. Could you describe to listeners the image that I have here? Oh, I would be delighted. Uh, we have a very cozy looking room with a lot of books behind a gentleman who is extending his feet towards the camera with a look of serenity upon his face. <laughs> he does indeed have his beer feet uh, <laughs> directly at us here at home. If you ever wanted to, to know exactly what the bottom of Alejandro Jodorowsky's feet look like, you just go to his Instagram right now. In fact, I would su- suggest going to his Instagram anyway, because he does post a lot on it. Uh, this is what uh, he wrote uh, with that post. This is translated from Spanish to English. He says, today, Sunday, I will try to show you what a rest meditation is. This meditation does not begin with the brain sunk in a sea of words, nor does it begin with the heart preoccupied with uniting or disuniting with emotional goals. It is not a sexual activity hypnotized by desire, nor does it begin with the body in general imprisoned in its vital needs. The most important thing for the perfect rest are the soles of the feet because they connect us to planet Earth. Here's the exercise. Try to spend this blessed day locked up in your home with your bare feet and slowly go through each room, concentrating on the soles of your feet. If you do this, you will see that the image of your home changes completely. That home becomes the soil of the entire planet. You feel the force of gravity that has you glued to the surface. See what is the force that keeps you like this, carrying the weight of your body. This force comes from the center of the planet. Bare feet are the door to every part of your body. There is the heart, the ligature, the lungs, etc., plus the memories, the ambitions, the desires. The soles of the feet absorb the energy that comes from the center of the earth, which generously gives us its strength acquired from the center of the sun. The solar force keeps us alive because it comes from a set of stars that shine, filling the entire sky. In short, the soles of the feet penetrate the entire universe. This monumental energy rises through your body until it reaches the brain, takes over space and time, enters the absolute present, crosses your skull and dissolves with you in that all that we call God. Every step you take on the farm expresses the joy of living. That's the best of breaks. Good Sunday without shoes. I dance with you. 
I don't know about the two of you. I'm getting rid of my socks and shoes immediately. What do you think, Julia? <laughs> uh, it reminds me. Uh, so this is a whole story that I'm not going to get into. But uh, sure. I worked for a, a job that sent me to Hawaii for a week. And part of what I got to do when I was there was get some sort of energy work thing go, done. I'm not really exactly sure what it was. But the lady <laughs> asked me, how often do you, she's like, how often do you stand on the earth? And I was like, I don't ever. <laughs> In LA, I don't. When would sure, I? I have course, no yard. Right? Like, I there's nothing. And I'm like, I don't. And she's like, it's important to do that every day. And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> like, where do I go? And <laughs> so it was interesting that I like I never thought about that. But she, you know, in Hawaii, it was like you know connect to the earth every morning, right, go to the right, beach, and type stuff. I'm like, well, I just don't do that. So maybe I would be a better person if I did. Liam, there are some people who believe that we should all be living a shoeless existence, right? That we should be walking in our bare feet as often as possible. Now I live in Canada, so that probably isn't entirely possible because it would mean my feet would freeze off of my body. But outside of that, should we be connecting to the earth a little bit more directly with our bare feet? I mean, the basic idea there that there's this connection... Um, it's a little too hoo-hoo for me, which is perhaps <laughs> silly to say on a, on a Yoroski podcast. It seems like a weird sentiment to have, but it's true. It just feels a little too touchy-feely in one sense. On the other hand, I am internationally known for being disdainful of socks. I find mm. socks uh, really gross, and I only Anti wear them. socks I only wear them in the winter because my feet get cold. <laughs> but like <laughs> outside of my feet being cold, I don't want them in my life. And if the out of doors was not so pointy and burny and difficult on my feet, I would wear shoes less than I do. But for me, I'm very much like a. Uh, when I've gone out in my bare feet when I was a kid, I was always stepping on bees, stepping. Well, this is this is less common now, but I used to I used to have a thing where I, if if there was a cigarette that someone forgot to stamp out, I was going to step on into my bare feet. I've probably stepped on ten unlit cigarettes when Man, I was a you kid. You need to watch where you're going. Just maybe look down as you're walking. Well, I would How many bees do you step on? Uh, a few, uh, or just like sharp, pointy things. Anyways, I love being in bare feet. <laughs> I love being in bare feet in my house, and I probably would be okay with being in bare feet outside more, but I'm just freaked out by stuff on the ground. So I wear shoes. Uh, and honestly, I you know, I don't even really wear sandals a lot because when I lived in Philly, you know, I'm not trying to be gross here, guys, but Please. In, in the summertime, there's sometimes cockroaches on the sidewalk. So... Mm-hmm. Wearing sandals seems like a crazy thing a crazy person would do. I got to wear shoes here because I'm not trying to have a cockroach touch my bare foot. That's fucking disgusting. So I, I I haven't worn sandals in a long time, and I don't know that I will. Okay, so you don't again. wear socks. So what shoes do you wear? Yeah. Are they oh, stinky? Uh, <laughs> they, they can be. I have to be careful. <laughs> and I do wear socks, especially now that I'm in Chicago. I wear socks most of the year. But as soon as it's summertime... <laughs> Yeah, I, I try not to wear socks. I, I monitor my shoes to make sure they don't get too stinky because I don't want to I don't want to gross people out. <laughs> monitor are we talking like Converse, Doc Martens? What are we talking about? Uh, right Crocs. now, oh. right now, I'm Ugh. pretty I, I'm pretty obsessed with uh, Rockport leather boat shoes. They are okay. So like, uh, what do they call? Sorry. Go ahead. It's okay. They, I mean, they just look like old man shoes to me. Uh, I dog siders, right? Uh, yeah, they're not exactly like that, but they're similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, it doesn't matter. They're 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 just brown leather shoes. 
Uh, I have really wide feet, so they stretch. <laughs> the leather stretch to, my, to meet my feet. And then I have... Man, you never know where this podcast will go. I know. It could be and in then, any and then I have a, a Liam, number... You can't imagine how aroused exactly one of our listeners yeah, is. Exactly, right. exactly. And then I have a bunch of shoes. I have a bunch of shoes that I wear... Just for like going on, like, like I'd say working out, but it's really just long walks because I haven't like run in a while, but I have like workout shoes. Well, thankfully, uh, Jodorowsky does not require you to go outside and step on cockroaches and bees with your bare feet. <laughs> he specifically mentions going throughout your house and kind of um, forming a new connection or a deeper connection just to the earth in which you stand on, even if the house is between it and the actual earth itself. I think it's a nice sentiment. Reminds me a little of what John McClane was told to do in Die Hard. Didn't work out so well for him but i think it would work for us and our listeners uh and again i like these kind of sunday meditations that jodorowsky uh puts out into the world on his instagram and uh even if this photo in particular is just like i was scrolling down my feed and just suddenly being confronted with jodorowsky's feet was not something i was expecting on my sunday hey i'm glad it's there i'm glad we get to experience it together on the Jodowski Podcast. Speaking of the Jodowski Podcast, we're here today to talk about comics, specifically the comic work of Alejandro Jodorowsky. We have three major works to talk about today. They're all very dense. They're all very different. Uh, they're all uh, were released uh, initially in the 1990s, uh, kind of a period, you know, after The Rainbow Thief, but before kind of a lot of his rediscovery the of his Thief. work. You guys remember that? <laughs> 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 All of them allow a little more creativity and Jodorowskian touches than the Rainbow Thief as well. <laughs> Let us take a break. When we return, we're going to start with 1992's Moonface. The arrival of the mute Moonface on the island of Damanestra is the catalyst for revolution, a grandiose tale about power, strength, and madness. That is a very succinct summary of 1992's Moonface, written, of course, by the great Alejandro Jodorowsky and illustrated by Francois Bouc, who this is the first time I believe we've encountered his art, though he has worked with Jodorowsky a number of times, including on the graphic novel series Bouncer, which is set in a bleak Western scenario, according to Wikipedia, that is the most famous work that they have done together, from what I've found. Now, uh, Buk is a very, very well-known and well-respected artist. He was awarded the Grand Prix de la Ville d'Angoulême. Oh, boy. La Ville d'Angoulême. Uh, in keeping with the festival's tradition, he was the president of the jury in the following year. He is like a very respected European cartoonist, draws in a kind of beautiful... Uh, um, detailed style very similar i think to mobius in some ways but then again that entire generation of artists i think were influenced by M mobius to one extent or another this is a very unique tale very jodorowskian it is again about this character of moonface and uh another of what seems like a series of 
uh, societies that are being ruled by with an iron fist by greedy and corrupt politicians. It's very kind of, of centered on this land that is very detailed. We get a lot of, of uh, characters that kind of flesh out all of the intricities of it. It feels like there's a lot of background in it, honestly, when we start, that we haven't been privy to. It feels like we're in, we kind of start in the middle of a story to a certain extent, and then we have to catch up afterwards. But that seems pretty consistent with a lot of the work that we've checked out so far. But let's start. Again, this is a very lengthy work. I think it's five issues of about 50 pages each. There's too much for us to go into in detail. Let's get some general thoughts first, starting with you, Julia. What did you think of Moonface? At, uh, at first, it, it, it kind of it seemed so similar to Incal yes. that I was like, okay, that kind of bothers me that they, they're so similar. And then I go, okay, but then we'll think of it as it's just set in the Incal universe. They're just in the same world and like these kind of things are happening everywhere. Like that's how I mentally was like, oh, okay. If I think of it that way, where it's it's part of this world and not a separate comic, I guess. Um, I mean, we can, we're going to get into it. So um, right off the bat, uh, the, all of the religious stuff in this bothered me mm. a lot. So we're going to get into that. <laughs> well, do you want to just give a little bit more, like, bother you? I mean, in, in... I, I guess I just, like, this kind of innocence coming in to, uh, to help the world, and that's fine, but it's all for this, like, it's so, you know, because a lot, almost all of his movies have, like, very religious context, right? Sure, and we're going to talk about uh, Son, of, Son of the Gun, which also has a lot. Um but you know, I much prefer a, like a like a hardened gunslinger Jesus to a <laughs> innocent moonfaced Jesus. Like it just felt kind of ham fisted a little. Like he this was character, little... like I don't know what I'm, why I'm supposed to like him other than he's just kind of a Jesus figure. And he's even kind of like better than Jesus. Hey, I'm sorry I said that out loud, but you know what I mean. That he can do <laughs> like you, you and John Lennon, right? You, you <laughs> That's right. He's 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 bigger and better than Jesus in that he can kind of do anything that the plot requires. You know, he can stretch his limbs, he can change his face, he can bring the dead back to life, he can control the weather. It does. It feels like he's a living Deus Ex Machina, which I guess you know kind of makes sense in a messianic figure. But I did find that for a person like Jodorowsky, a writer like him who loves to create scenarios which are impossible to get out of and then find a way, like puzzle his way out of them. And you see that in some of his other works. Well, if you have a guy who can do basically anything, <laughs> then I guess the, the, it's hard to feel much tension in a lot of the scenarios that you find yourself in. That said, I did think that this separated itself from the in-call in its kind of more natural environment, you know what I mean? With all the water around, all the birds and things like that. It, 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 but compared also to like, like a mechanized big, aspects. big, big brothel, big, big mechanized yeah. brothel going well. into that as well, right? So like that's the world where I'm like, oh, okay. that And all the people, all like the bad, like political people and, and religious 100%. people. 100%. Like, oh, okay. They could be taken up. directly from that world. And some of those characters feel like just mirror images of some of those characters we saw in the Incal. That's a great, a great point because... That is one of the things. I mean, we love the Incal. I think we all really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. But it's it 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 sometimes feels like we're just treading the same territory again. I will say that I really like the opening, like the first issue of this. I started to get a little both confused and a little disinterested in the second and third issues, and then I kind of came back around by the end simply because it seemed to be embrace the weirdness <laughs> to such a great extent, which we'll go into as well. But before we do, Liam, I know you've been concerned because it's so deep. But what did you think of Moonface? I don't know that deep is is what I would say necessarily because I think that 
uh, Julia's feeling that it feels a bit ham-fisted makes sense and that this is, uh, uh, you know, the thing with Jodorowsky I think that we've seen is that there's always multiple layers, so it's easy to feel like you're not getting all the references, but also things can be very direct so that when you do get something from it, you might not understand all the things he means by it, but it's very much like uh, straightforward. Like, this is what it is. I will say, I I kind of disagree a little bit with you guys in that uh, Moonface is not a Jesus figure. Uh, the hunchback is the Jesus figure. Moonface is the is the divinity behind the the, the real guy, uh, because you know the hunchback is actually the son of the of the whore slash Madonna figure, and it, no one knows who his father is. Right. Uh, Moonface is actually, I think, a stand-in for Buddha. Uh, he has no face. He has no identity. He is nothing. Mm-hmm. And in being nothing, he is invulnerable and powerful. It is in his nothingness that he is above all these other people who are mired in their various identities and and uh, entrenchments and attachments. And Moonface, by being completely separate from from anything in particular can be the only source of anything good because he's not attached to anything. Uh, But for me personally, that idea of the lack of attachment is a source of enlightenment. It just bums me out. I've never really liked that. And I, (laughs) and I don't, and I don't say it a lot because I don't want to, because I have a, 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 a history in Christianity I don't like to have really strong critiques of other faith groups because that's what Christians love to do is walk around being like, everyone's wrong and I'm right. But the lack of attachment idea, while I get it, I actually think there is a logic to it. I think the idea that letting go of attachments will in and of itself lead to a kind of enlightenment is problematic in a world that is literally so attached that we couldn't detach if we wanted to. Like the, the, the illusion that you are disconnected from your fellow man is part of the problem of the modern world and it's and, and I think oftentimes the the shortened version sort of the Klisnos version of that insight in Buddhism is often deployed in scenarios where it is not actually meant for enlightenment but it's just meant to justify not caring about the world around you and I don't I don't love that that being said I think that I get what's going on there with the moon face thing I will say there's a lot of visual references in this comic to literal people. Like the the leaders of Very this rebellion so. look like real political people. Mm-hmm. Some of the other people look like real. Yeah, we're going to talk about people. that in just a little bit. That's in the and, discussion. Topic. And I don't know that I get all of that per right. se. And and this is another thing where, on one hand, a lot of it does feel a little on the surface, like a little on the nose. Let's say. On the other hand. There are decisions he makes where I'm like, I don't get that. Like, I'm looking at this hunchback guy being like, yeah, you know, the hunchback represents the Jesus of the institutional church. I kind of get that. But why does an egg come out of his back? I don't fucking know. And that's and that's and that's how I feel a lot of times is like there's a visual or a thematic reference that Yodorowsky makes that feels very iconic to me and I resonate with it. And I like, I don't, I don't think he, this is a literal representation, but this reminds me of this other thing. And I, I resonate with that idea, but then he'll make a store, a decision either visually, narratively, whatever it is. And then I go, well, I don't know what the fuck that is. And yeah, that, I mean, I that happens all I, the time. You know, that happens all the time. But did you like it? <laughs> oh, right. So back to the thing. I don't think I, you know, what's interesting is I found it more, 
interesting to think about what he might be doing more than I thought some of the other stuff we're going to be discussing. I thought there was more stuff here that I wanted to think about. But as an actual narrative, I didn't care that much. I, I, I was invested because I wanted to understand it to some extent, to a limited whatever limited extent I can. And I knew that we needed to read it for the show. But if I was reading this on my own, I might not finish it. Not because it's bad, but it just wasn't I didn't I wasn't gripped by it in the same way. Whereas like Son of a Gun, which was a bit harder for me in some ways, uh, it's at least compelling. And I I don't know that I found every aspect of Moonface that compelling. I think the difficulty that I had had to do with the fact that there isn't really a character that you really are attached to in it, right? You, that Moonface is supposed to be the central character, but we don't really know anything about him. He's not even necessarily meant to represent something literal. Uh, so, you know, the characters he surrounds himself, they're a little more human. They're a little bit more flawed. But they you don't really get much from them, and it's hard to really yeah. dig into them. Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of – it felt like its primary goal as a work – was its political and social message as opposed to the plot, and which meant that, you know, over the course of five lengthy issues, you start to feel a little disconnected for it. At least I did. Just to give you an example of that weirdness I was talking about, and Liam just alluded to, there's a part near the end where our group, including Moonface, they go out into the desert of Quicksand to find a golden flower that's meant to wake that hunchback Messiah that we've been talking about. Once they complete this quest, with Moonface being the key to unlocking the golden flower, which only blooms once every thousand years, the hunchback immediately dies, the land becomes full of life and, and greenery, and the character that was guiding them uh, turns into a bunch of bees. He just turns into bees. And then the giant egg hatches out of the hunchback's hump, which then floats into the air, and our characters are carried along by a huge like uh, collection of seagulls, which directs them to a grand palace where the egg will stand as the cornerstone that's strange man <laughs> also they, they say cornerstone but it's actually for the roof yeah which i also roof. was like what the fuck is going on i i mean again it's at some point we've been like what the fuck is going on in every single thing that we've sure. done so uh, i'm not saying this is that much weirder than other stuff but i will say for something that has such obvious stuff as one of the revolutionary leaders looks exactly like Lenin. So that's yes. like a clear, that's like a really on the nose reference. On the other hand, there's also a bunch of stuff that made me go, what the fuck? So it's like a weird combination of like, oh, that's really obvious, but I don't know why it's obvious. I don't know what the point of this obvious reference is per se. Well, I mean, I think it's funny that we talked, I just talked about the idea of, you know, the difficulty of finding a narrative hook that I could connect to in regards to it and, and finding that a little frustrating. You know, some people don't like uh, Jodorowsky's, you know, well most well-known movies, El Topo and The Holy Mountain, because they feel that they're very confusing. They feel that they're not getting all the references that, that maybe some of the same um, complaints I had are present for them in those works. Now, I thought that while reading this, that this might have been the most Jodorowskian, at least in terms of those type of films, uh, work that we've we've encountered so far, maybe outside of the Incal, maybe even including that, because the Incal, uh, it seemed a little more interested in the in, in carrying the plot around, and it has John DeFool and things like that. W what do you think, uh, both think about this comic being the most like a Jodorowsky film, starting with you, Julia? Do you think that there's a, a, a similarity to what this comic is doing compared to something like The Holy Mountain? Well, I mean, I don't think I. I mean, you, you were talking about like Sons of El Topo is yeah. going to be pretty mm -hmm. much the most Jodorowsky thing you're going to see, right? Yeah. I mean, Son of the Gun is also. I was like, oh yeah, but this the thing is, is as we've known, we've read many comics, we've seen many movies. I'm never going to be. I mean, I'm always going to be surprised what, with what he does, and so yeah. it gives me a sense of 
uh, non what the fuckery, right? Like I'm never, <laughs> I'm never thrown because I know it's going to be insane. So I'm willing to take, you know, I will t- wherever he wants to go. I'm like, okay, we're going here now. Great. You know, it's a kind of, you know, Stephen King's kind of the same way. You're just like, oh, okay, this way. All right, you just go along, and so I am always delighted to see. I mean, if he wants to hatch a giant egg out of a hunchback, you know, hunchback's back, I go okay. <laughs> it's not a choice I would make, but this is why I love it because it's 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 his wonderful brain, which is just weird and delightful. I that endless creativity. Sorry, Liam, I just want to mention just quickly yeah. that endless creativity that we see in Jodorowsky, you know, that that something that you really couldn't think of. It's kind of amazing to think that so many people have used that AI technology, you know, as we've discussed, to make Jodorowsky in images when it, it would be hard for us to define what that actually is outside of just being kind of strange. Liam, yes, please. I think the part of this that is interesting, not interesting, that is um, making me go, what the fuck, is actually, though, some of the places where it feels more connected to something like people are confused by the holy mountain and i think that that's fair uh there are clear references in it though to the tarot right Mm. like there are connections but also he's doing his own thing with it one of the things that's weird about moonface is how much actual bible he uses in it how much actual religious reference there's an actual cathedral that grows out of the earth and even while I feel like Moonface is not exactly a Jesus figure. There is still a lot of references to Christianity in it. And as well as political, you know, there's uh, someone who looks like Margaret Thatcher. And there's references to like very specific religious stuff. And it's almost based in a more, I don't want to say real world because it's psychotic, but it has connections to things that feel kind of grounded. That almost is more confusing for me than some of the things he's done that are more symbolic because i feel like this is still a symbolic work it, it feels more allegorical let's say than mm-hmm. um than like for example son of el topo or even the what we read for this uh, uh uh episode son of a gun though less so the other thing which we'll get to in a bit sure. um so i i think that was part of my confusion is i'm like man there's a lot of concrete details in this so to speak like like connections to the world that I, I think are chosen very intentionally but for whatever reason in this work I wasn't sure why and not that I, again I need to understand I think I'm very comfortable with being confused but sometimes I kind of get a feeling of like what we're going for and I, you know I didn't get that with this one per se uh, but again I, I think for me um, there are a number of characters in his other works like a great example in the ink call is John the Fool right like mm-hmm. he is in many ways a uh, a, a archetype of a character, but he has a personality, and sure. it didn't feel like a lot of the characters in Moonface had a solid personality. And so, I think I also was looking too much to resonate with the themes because I didn't find the narrative as engaging as some of the other comics we've read. Like, so for example, Meta Barons. I don't know what the themes uh, in that necessarily always are, but I kind of find the Meta Baron or the various Meta Barons very compelling as people, even if they're kind of psychotic as well. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm engaged by their story. This one, it wasn't like there was anything in it narratively that I felt as pushed by in the same way. But to be clear, I never thought it was boring either. It just wasn't as um, – it didn't pull me in as much as some of the other stuff we've read. I do think that – I, I think that, that that kind of message at its core seems to be about the need for spirituality, right? Because even the, the political figures have obviously rejected 
any level of spirituality. Even the priests that we see, they're, they're atheists, which is like a little bit of an odd uh, turn to take. But yeah, it is. There's so much, right? There is a denseness to both the political commentary and the religious commentary here, and it is frustrating when you're reading it to think that you're nece not necessarily taking it all in, and also that you're not um, putting it in the context of when it was made, right? In 1992, when this initially came out, some of these things might have been a little bit more in your face in a way that in 2023, maybe they, they seem a little distant, even in terms of some of the visual references. Let's go back to this character of Moonface for a moment. He's childlike, mute, seemingly endless power, as I've already <laughs> mentioned. Uh, and as you said, Liam, not really a Christ figure. We, we have the hunchback for that, but he seems to be kind of representative of kind of a wider sense of religious power, spirituality, maybe like a holy even, fool, like a holy fool, right? Like, because what we see him do is just kind of whenever there's any kind of fear or danger, he's just dancing. He's able to control the earth. He feels kind of Jodorowsky like, and I don't mean in terms of the visual sense, but like how Alejandro Jodorowsky sometimes presents himself uh, as being sort of maybe not above it all, but certainly someone who sees the world from a different perspective and uses that to his advantage. What did you think of this character, Julia Moonface? I, uh, uh, Liam's uh, breakdown of what he thought of the, the Buddha-like nothingness, I was like, oh, that makes more sense than yeah. that. That kind of makes me like him better. I have no read on it, man. Like he, <laughs> he annoys me a little. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel terrible saying that. I always want to say nice things and I will, but like that, the character is like, oh, it's just because he's, he, I know he's being altruistic, but for some reason, because maybe because of like the, the way he's drawn his face, he just looks smug. And like, <laughs> look how how much better I am than you. And you're all kind of like down in this mire while I'm just enjoying life. And like, that's not the way to read this. I know it's not, but that's the way I was like, oh, kind of bug, man. <laughs> I think there's a part of it. Like at at a certain point while I was reading it, a character would be like, what are you doing, Moonface? We're in real danger here. And he would just be like doing whatever. And all I could think at that point is like, well, you've seen him do like, 20 miracles at this point just fucking go along with Moonface. obviously he's gonna work he knows what's going on in a way that no one else seems to so just the fact that they keep getting kind of frustrated and confused by his behavior yeah so are we but i guess that what he's doing is the right thing liam you've already yeah, mentioned i your, guess like mm. that also makes it kind of a religious thing where you say just like follow me blindly absolutely because, and now you're all my sheep and i will lead you and you don't need to worry about your life like that you know i it's something that's supposed to be inspirational i guess that you know you if you core down like if you took away everything that makes you anxious or unhappy in your life and just be just focused on the beauty that's like you know adenowski was talking about you know you're just looking at the, like the songbirds and the trees that's what the essence of what we're all that's what enlightenment is isn't it is that you're yeah. just mindful all the time and just enjoying what you have at that moment that's supposed to be what enlightenment is so i guess he's enlightened but putting him against this very hardcore background it makes it seem so incongruous it's also maybe also more incongruous because it feels like alejandro chodorowsky sometimes can't get away from the sleaze factor you know what i mean Where i like see that's the thing i like the sleaze so much more i'm so much more interested in what's going on in the brothel than i am going on with my face <laughs> honestly well, that's but that's it. But like a story of spiritual enlightenment. I mean, I guess you definitely need the, these kind of villainous characters, but he does seem sometimes a little more into the sleaze. And I get into that, too. Um, and I uh, I so, you know, I was going to dip into the political satire parts, but I think Liam has already mentioned it. There are 
characters in this that are obviously based off real people. There's a character that looks like Lenin, as you mentioned, Liam, and other revolutionaries. We have Margaret Thatcher basically on display here. It's obviously a commentary on corrupt political figures, but that also seems to be in all of the Jodorowsky work that we've seen for the most part as well. Uh, I want to ask you, anyone have a favorite supporting character? We didn't we didn't all care for Moonface necessarily, but there's lots of characters in this. Starting with you, Liam, any character stick out to you as someone you enjoyed? That's a good question, actually. I think um, it's hard because um, almost all the characters are bad <laughs> uh, in, in the sense that like you've got you've got Moonface, you've got Moonface's companion whose name uh, escapes me right now. What is the name? Isha. Yeah, Isha. Isha. Uh, so there's Isha. There's Moonface. Then eventually one of the leaders of the underground gangs joins them but he doesn't seem like much of a character then we have the old priest at the destroy cathedral and all he's kind of there to do is like quote scripture but like it's interesting because i think it would be easy to look to him as like the source of knowledge but a lot of times it just feels like he's applying a logic to what's happening after the fact i think there's an implied criticism of him as well actually Mm. not a, a hugely negative criticism like his role is to guide the people and to bring logic to what's happening but he never knows what's happening he he has no insight all he does is explain things after they already happen he can never say this is what we should do he has no fucking clue it's all about Moonface. and part of me starts to think like maybe Moonface also represents some sort of like intangible will of the universe god whatever because it's Mm. like you want to believe that it has like good intentions towards you and there is evidence of that but also it just it it just isn't going to rely on you like you can't rely on it to respond to your desires or commands right you're just constantly going what the fuck are you doing so i wonder if that's part of it um as far as strange though right because like the unknowable universe could just as well be the the waves that are constantly threatening to kill everybody on this well, island. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah yeah! Totally, <laughs> totally. Uh, well, and and I do I do want to mention really quick. One of the things I noticed about Moonface is uh, there's a famous painting of Saint Francis where he's like dancing and the sun is over top and mm. it's very sketched or whatever. There are multiple scenes that look like Moonface that that the design is based off of that painting. And one moment particularly when he grabs the whatever the radioactive isotope is and just eats it <laughs> yeah it looks exactly <laughs> like that painting and i kind of thought like oh, i wonder if there's like a saint Re- francis reference here as well as far as the mm. idea of like the wild holiness out there that is kind of uncontrollable that you can't really make conform which kind of makes sense because so much of the institutions here like you have the institution of political power, which is bad. You have the revolutionary poor who like you sympathize with, but also aren't making the best decisions and sometimes are just very cruel. And then uh, eventually they have tradition show up, right? Tradition is the whalers, I guess. Uh, they're not called whales, but the, the people sure. who go out and kill the the already dying Flen- flensers. Yeah. And, and they cut <laughs> off their, they, they like maim themselves because they know it, it's, it's not uh, dangerous anymore to hunt these things because of the pollution or whatever. Uh, they kind of represent tradition, right? And all of these things kind of fail. And then even the popular sort of revolution thing that that Moonface is doing at the cathedral falls apart and then comes back together. So there's there's this weird kind of like 
uh, a thing where I, I don't know that there's anyone I particularly like for liking sake. So I have to go to like people who maybe I think suck in a way that I think is fun. And I kind of liked the unhinged insanity of, of uh, the, the man who would be Messiah, right? The false right. Messiah. Uh how he I goes think, from being kind of like this meek character to immediately buying yeah, into his. I will. Religion. I will drink everyone's blood. We're gonna have a <laughs> holy orgy. I'll destroy everything. No one can hurt me. There's something about the the way he's so ready to be that person that I kind of like. And but it's not like in a way where like because he's charming. It's like I kind of like how insane he is, and that was appealing to me. You know? Well, that's why I asked favorite as opposed to the one that you liked the most. <laughs> yeah, well, but you know, me, I, mean, I like yeah. the guy who turned into the bees because. Uh, yeah, that is. I fun. thought it was. <laughs> A lady. I think oh, was, was it a lady? Yeah, oh, yeah. sorry. The the person who turned into the bees. The person, and also that they were out in the desert with those camels with the skull with the skeletons on them. I thought that was a very very cool visual. I actually did like that character uh, just generally for their mysteriousness. How about you, Julia? Any character that jumped out to you? Um, <laughs> I'm really think. I'm like I. I mean, I guess I like Isha. She seems pretty cool. Uh, I wish they I, did more with her. You know, I know that they connect her to the plot with her father and things like that. But like, I just she want to know how been... they teamed up. Yeah, like where did they come from? Like, what what about him appealed to her that she wanted to spend so much time protecting him? But yeah, I I feel like she should have been the character that we the audience were connecting to the whole time. But yes, I, I just agree. wasn't feeling it. Yeah. How yeah. about he, was there any, uh, you know, Liam mentioned the whale hunters. He stole my uh, comment here about my favorite moment in it about these guys who are going You're out to hunt. You're allowed to have the same moment. I know, okay. I know it, but he got there first. But uh, these whalers who go out and kill this whale, it's already dead. And because they're, they're trying to, as Liam said, connect to their own history and their own legacy, they have to mutilate themselves and drown themselves just to show that the hunt was difficult even though they're just murdering something that's already dead anything else like a sequence in the in the in the work that jumped out to you julia i kind of like i wanted to spend more time with the uh the trans ladies who worked in the kitchen of the brothel yeah i just had a few frames of them and i was like oh what's their deal I want to find out about them, but we never see them again. <laughs> that whole that whole brothel sequence generally, I think, had so much interesting stuff. Like they, I agree, you yeah. could you could have explored that. I think uh, a lot more. Um, I would have I would have preferred that to be honest. A lot more in that world <laughs> would have been a lot more fun. I'm from Las Vegas. Give me some fucking sleaze. Um, I also but I also enjoy that we have you know the grotesque mom prostitute who, but the building is also just her. Yes, it's just like her and you like walk in between her legs, and it's like this is great. You're like you the build you are in the building of you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean th- those are certainly the kind of odd, grotesque. I guess you would say in some ways touches, but maybe grotesque is actually the wrong word. I mean, one of the things that I think is consistent through a lot of Jodorowsky's comic work is his affection for the outsiders in society, even if sometimes he condemns them at the same time. I mean, but certainly people that. Uh, in comics or in really fictional work uh, of those time periods. You know, we've talked about it before when we were talking about the Meta Barons with trans characters. I mean, there are characters that, you know, are intersex, that are uh, non-gender conforming in some of these works. And I think it's really interesting to see how someone in the mid-90s, early 90s, already an older gentleman, someone that you wouldn't think would be necessarily open-minded about such things, that, that there does seem to be an open-mindedness, maybe confirmed some of the things that we talked about in regards to that Meta Barons conversation that we had earlier. Let's move on to, as we finish up our look at uh, Moonface, the art. We have not 
seen Francois Buch's work before. Uh, you know, I compared him earlier to Mobius, which I think is a, a pretty big compliment. Just over to you, Liam. Uh, did you think he was a worthy collaborator for Jodorowsky? Uh, what did you enjoy most about the art in this comic? I liked it a lot. I liked the, well, you said maybe we shouldn't say grotesque, but I feel like some of the details were pretty grotesque in here, and I liked that. Um, it is kind of similar to Mobius. I guess that's fair. Uh, but it feels like the the post Mobius tradition of this kind of art is so broad at this point that like sure. I'm not that surprised that there's some similarities there. Uh, yeah, it all felt kind of kind of gross and um, but but <laughs> but, uh, but also uh, it, it, there are lots of scenes that where things just feel a bit overwhelming, you know, and I and I appreciate that as well. I don't know. I just I liked I liked it a lot. This is this is a style that I enjoy and I felt like the art was maybe my favorite part of the comic, you know. Compared to the Mobius work in the Ink Call, which is a little bit cartoonish, right? And some of the characters obviously, but also just overall has a more recognizably cartoonish feel. There's it's not that the characters here are realistic, but they more conform to realistic I was going to say proportions, but then I remembered the mother prostitute character. But I mean, you know, yeah. just generally, it feels a little more uh, down to earth. Uh, maybe it's also because there isn't as much technology surrounding everything as well. But it's also a little more colorful than uh, some of the work that we've seen recently. Um, some of the other work we've discussed, I should say, from Jodorowsky. How about you, Julia? What did you think of the art in this book? I thought it was beautiful. I thought I really enjoyed the style. There, my favorite sequence was when they were down in the tunnels and they were surrounded by flies. Yes. So I was just thinking it looked so gorgeous, and I was thinking about how you would go about that as an artist because you don't want to obscure what's happening, but also you have to show how many there are. Uh, it was really beautifully done. So I that was my favorite sequence to look at. Um, it's it, I'm still learning with comics because I'm such a novel person. You know, sure. I read books constantly that it's hard for me to remember to look at the art sometimes. Sometimes I'm just reading it like I would a book. I'm like, no, no, this is a whole different medium. And like, this is part of what you're doing. So that really makes me slow down and really pay attention to every frame as much as I can, looking at it as I would a Jodorowsky film, right? I always kind of picture this in 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 his directing world. And I think that that's, uh, this is, you know, we've had some comics we talked about where we didn't care for the art very much. And this mm -hmm. one, I feel like, yeah, thumbs up. I feel like the storytelling through the art is it. I can't remember actually the name of the one that we were referring to, but the one that we had difficulty kind of telling what's going on. That's not a problem here for me. You know, mm -hmm. the, the the plot can be a little confusing, but the art I think thinks makes things as clear as they can possibly be. I really like it. I really think it's very very well done. The 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 scope of the water that surrounds this area and the, the you know those those large scale uh, images of those waves coming at it. I think it's just so incredibly well done, and it it has to go to all these different locations. And it just feels very consistent, you know, a very consistent visual style that makes the whole thing feel very cohesive in a way that, I mean, is not always the case with mainstream comics, but seems to be the case with a lot of these Jodorowsky works. Maybe it's because he doesn't feel as tied to a schedule as a lot of American comics do. I loved it. I loved looking at it. And it's something that I feel like it gives me more of a reason to go back to it. And that makes me feel like maybe I'll appreciate it more with a revisit. Yes, Julia. I think that it's also, we haven't mentioned that it, how much the art needs to portray what Moonface is thinking or doing yes. because mm -hmm. he doesn't speak. So you have to be able to interpret, you know, if you were doing this as a, as a film, you'd have this character that would, you, know, you would get so much from their actions and you don't have this here. So I think he did a really good job of showing 
what he's doing or thinking through just a frame of comic. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah, especially because it can be a little inscrutable. I also worry whenever we're talking about these works, whether the translation, you know, could also be add to some of the confusion that we might have. Remembering that this was not written in English initially, though, yeah, I, I did feel like, you know, it. I didn't feel like it was badly translated or anything like that. And these are obviously newer versions that hopefully have more accurate translations. Uh, just sticking with you, Julia, as we finish up here, any final thoughts on Moonface as a whole? And would you recommend this comic to fans of Jodorowsky's films? I probably would not uh, recommend this one. Uh, this is uh, the, not that because it's not excellent, but because there's so many more that we've read that I feel like I like probably the end is the one I'd be like, this is the one we start with. Sure. Um, even though there's so much else that you could go for. So this really, it's not my favorite, but it's still great. <laughs> if the in-call is Jodorowsky 101, this is like, you know, advanced studies for sure. Yeah. <laughs> How about yourself, Liam? Any final thoughts on Moonface? And would you recommend it to fans of Jodorowsky generally? Um, I think only to people who are already excited about his comic work. Like, I think it's not so far off that you wouldn't enjoy it per se, but I don't think it's essential. I think for someone who, because, you know, there's a lot of material here and there's so many other things to read that if you're just getting in, I think I would recommend a lot of the other stuff we've covered before I would recommend this uh, with only a few exceptions, you know? Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, again, I do think it's very worthwhile. Uh, the art is beautiful. I mean, there is still lots of amazing uh, you know, character work here and weird situations. It does still have that Jodorowsky feel to it, but it does feel like one that is inscrutable in a, and frustratingly so at times still you know it, if any listener wants to check it out you can currently get a hardcover version through uh, humanoids that was published in 2019 with the full five issues uh, within it it has a bit of a tumultuous publishing history i know it's been difficult to find this uh comic as of a few years ago but thankfully thanks to humanoids uh and their jodorowsky collections you can now get it quite easily Moving on to 1994's Angel Claws. Uh, in Angel Claws, fre frequent collaborators Alejandro Jodorowsky and Mobius indulge their naughtier sides as they describe a young woman's quest for sexual awakening. Suggestive eroticism quickly evolves to metaphysical delirium, written, of course, by the great Alejandro Jodorowsky and illustrated by the justice great Mobius. We've discussed him at length in our in-call episodes and elsewhere, but needless to say, he's one of the most beloved and celebrated comic artists who's ever lived. The 2007 documentary Mobius Redux, A Life in Pictures, was recently added to the 2B stream platform in the u.s uh, if you want to know more about jean Giraud's career um i should note that like their initial comic collaboration that we've discussed on this podcast the eyes of the cat angel claws is a non-traditional comic work and similarly mixes prose with full page black and white images drawn by mobius and uh, while we've certainly covered sexually explicit material previously on this podcast angel claws it really takes it to another level and i want to add a trigger warning here for what could be some pretty intense content particularly around sexual assault and that by the way that trigger warning will continue for the rest of this episode uh, just to give you a brief idea of what this work is like, here's the text on one page. Usually it's presented like this. It's text on the left-hand page, left page with a small image above it, and then the right-hand page is a full uh, page image. This is the text on one page. There I was next to my patient. His organs now belong to me. The masked assembly before me thus waited for the ultimate act of ritual. The learned man, depraved by so much knowledge with sulking, seeing in my total lack of culpability a sign of ignominy. Little did I care what he thought. With irresistible strength, I pushed on his shoulder until he fell to his knees and I forced him to touch his forehead to the bloody tile floor. I then lifted his white apron, lowered his pants, brought out his milky buttocks and raped him, fiercely ramming his ass, which cracked open around my vengeful 
graceful phallus like a red flower with long liquid petals. And so that's the text on one page. On the opposite page, the images of a uh, man wearing a blood-spattered lab coat, holding some sort of metal implement with a hook on the end, and leaning on his shoulder is a female-presenting character wearing lingerie that exposes her breasts, as well as having a large, visible penis. Just giving you an idea of what Angel Claws is all about. It's really like nothing we've covered on this podcast previously. Uh, certainly intriguing in its own way. Starting with you, Liam, this time. What did you think of Angel Claws? It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't think you can be middle of the road on this one, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I, was I know, I know. Being silly. Um, you know, I wish, it, I wish I knew how to describe this more because it's not unfamiliar to me in the sense of like what angel claus does is combine um eroticism and erotic imagery with also like uh kind of like a almost like a mystical writing you know sure um it's definitely not a narrative that i think is meant to be taken literally uh and i think that um, there is a lot here about sexual awakening, but I think there might also be a lot of things here related to like spiritual awakening as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's hard in the in the West. We kind of assume that like should sex enter religion, that's a good sign that you've joined a cult. And I don't know that that's true everywhere in the world. In fact, historically, uh, sex and religion kind of went hand in hand, actually. Uh, in a lot of cultures, and so um, I sure think I've that, seen the devils before. I know how. It works. No, you know that, that's not really necessarily what I mean. Uh, so I think there is an extent that there is a, um, a, a, a an exploration of the psyche going on here that some people would read as spiritual. Maybe some people would see as just allegorical for like psychological stuff. There's things going on with like your parents and things. It's it's a lot of stuff that kind of reminded me of some of the themes actually in his uh, psychomagic work as well. Mm. Uh, however, uh, that being said, if someone picks this up thinking, oh, I'm going to get this cool horny book. Ah, the in-call too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> with, with sex. <laughs> not Yeah, not even just the in-call, right? But like, you know, th- this is not a Milo Minara book, right? Like this is not like uh, every a few pages is going to be something super horny. Um, a lot of the imagery here, though, it is related to sexuality. Um, some of it's really designed to mess with you, to be upsetting in some way, or to push a boundary in some way. And so uh, not that anyone should feel bad if they do think this is the hottest thing ever, but I don't know that it's necessarily uh, when someone says erotica, sometimes what they mean is art that is intended to arouse you and there's a lot of stuff here that seems more related to um kind of pushing people's boundaries and pushing ideas around uh relationships and identity and not about like you know feeling horny per se right right it's not it's not a letter to penthouse or something like that this is obviously (laughs) trying to explore some uh, unique areas of sexuality and also mm-hmm. an exploration of a female character, though an, kind of an unnamed female character and one that yeah. I'm not necessarily sure is consistently supposed to be the same person throughout the entire work. Also as an ending that we're going to talk about in just a little bit because it is the thing that I struggled with the most. But going over to you, Julia, what did you think of Angel Claws? I fucking loved it. I thought Great. it was awesome. awesome. Um, I, it, I feel like this is what 
having sex with Jodorowsky would be like. <laughs> exactly, right? It was like the super horny, sexy stuff. But then there's also like, there's a lot of talk about what this means spiritually and like going into these different worlds. I feel like this is that in comic form. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this, you know, it's, it's difficult because like, as you know, as Liam's saying, like there's a lot of imagery that you're like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. But I think that's the point of it. Yeah, absolutely. To be like, why do I not feel okay with that? And also... Um, there was a quote that I really, really liked in one of the pages, um, and this is when she's going on her journey. Uh, My education was to have only one subject matter, to learn to live. There was only one teacher, myself. Day mm. after day, we would concern ourselves with one phrase. Today, discipline. I was like, all right, I'm kind of into that. That's yeah. awesome that it's just kind of you, you're just you're your own teacher learning how to do those things. So I think the over arcing theme of like a sexual exploration coupled because the sexual exploration stuff is fun when you start to mix in the spiritual stuff it becomes less fun i guess it becomes more a metaphor right it becomes something that's it, you're mixing something tangible with intangible at the yeah, same no, time absolutely. I suppose. I think that's a something really outside point. and something inside P- particularly as what this is meant to supposedly be right as an erotic work as a, and a work that as liam so eloquently put it is meant to make you horny uh, do you think that this works as an erotic work, Julia? Yeah, I'm a pervert, and I f- felt like there's a, <laughs> there's a there's a lot of the pictures. I was like, oh, I kind of like that. It's kind of nice, mm-hmm. just because mainly because Mobius is such a beautiful artist, yeah. right? So you're getting his beautiful work of of these you know of these images, and I and I like to think of Jodorowsky like going like being with Mobius, working on the with him, and describing to him what he wants it to look like. That would be amazing um so it it i feel like joe Rusky in one way or another always has a like a slight level of sexuality to it but normally it's you're either like super sleazy prostitute or mm-hmm. using sex as part of some religious cult thing so i feel like there's very little in between there the fact that it ends up in what appears to be a a positive place you know what i mean where there's Does this it? transformational <laughs> well at the very least that the, the, the it's a search for some sort of sexual satisfaction that the person is able to find and finds it transcendent and transformational in a very unusual way, which again, we'll get to in just a moment. I think that there's something a little bit more that the idea that the exploration, even though it isn't always positive and it unlocks some kind of negativity as we go through the story, that it still ends in a place where someone finds actual release and satisfaction is something that I, I liked in, in, in the work. And I think it does reflect kind of classic eroticism as well. How about you, Liam? Uh, did you get turned on while reading? <laughs> no, I mean, do you think it's successful as a piece of uh, erotic art? Or is it meant to be more playful? Is it meant to kind of tease the audience a little bit? You know, I I don't... I mean, don't be wrong. Yeah, some of these pictures are hot. I, I don't mean that way, but I don't think that... Um, you know, I, I, I reference... Milo Minara simply as the the one erotic artist in comics that I'm familiar with, you know? Sure. There's Mm -hmm. a whole tradition of erotic comics, so I don't think it's that would be that weird for Yodorowsky to be writing in that world. Um, And I don't think it's that weird that he would do something erotic and have it filled with all this, like, uh, body transgression, trading of genders, uh, images of power, ideas of worship, like, all that stuff going on. Sure. Um it's just my my weird bias reading this was maybe re- revealing of kind of like my, where my head was at which was that um there's a whole tradition of 
erotic mysticism and not just in uh, non-Judeo-Christian faiths. There were saints who wrote about their experiences with Jesus that basically sound like they were getting fucked. And right. that's like not a very popular thing in, in America in 2023 among people who like Jesus. But if you've read enough historical saints, like a lot of sexual imagery, actually, it's it's not that rare. And and in, in other traditions, it's it's probably even more common. And so like... Maybe let's get is... those sex scenes out of movies. Am I right? Oh yeah, fuck. <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean. So like for me, Julia, like I didn't even. Some part of me went into this, y'all, thinking I don't believe that this is an erotic work. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be like kind of surprised how much stuff actually was kind of still erotic. I went in being like, oh no, this is just one of those complicated metaphors for spiritual awakening. But keep in mind, y'all, when I say I use spiritual a lot because Yodorowsky uses it. I think we have to keep in mind when we talk about Yodorowsky's spiritualism that he's very clear that he doesn't believe in a literal God. When he uses spiritual language, it's all representation of psychological stuff. So, like, I think if people get the wrong idea, they might think, like, these spiritual messages are about him converting you to a faith and not about him exploring what he sees as, like, such essential aspects of the human experience that the word spiritual is the only word that makes sense to describe them. So, like, the idea that, like, the, the you know, woman in a crowd of men you know, feeling excited by all of these men touching her at the same time, someone might be like, oh, that's a, clearly a fantasy. I'm like, yeah, it could also represent, re- represent some sort of psychological experience too. And right. I think that's why in some ways I felt like this was really successful overall because I think the reader will bring a lot of things to this. Uh, but I do appreciate that for some readers, it does cross some boundaries that people might be uncomfortable with as well. Uh, but I think the idea that, like, as a reader, you're going to read this and, like, parts are going to be hot, parts are going to be weird, parts are going to make you stop and think about maybe your own relationship with your father. Because uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a theme here as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Then, like, I, I, I think that is why it's successful. Because ultimately it's bringing something out of you as a reader as opposed to delivering something to you, which I think is not the only purpose of writing, you know? What do you think about, you know, I mentioned uh, in regards to Moonface about the the playing around a little bit with gender, uh, the fact that the character here doesn't really fit into binary gender norms because of the fact that she's presented with a penis sometimes. Um, I'm not sure I would describe them as trans in the context of this story, but Jodorowsky is obviously playing with gender here, and not just in this, in, in uh, some of the other works as well we're going to talk about. Uh, any any kind of follow-up thoughts to how gender is presented in this? Well, I think that we've talked before about how, on one hand, there are plenty of works that Jodorowsky has that sort of uh, seem to suggest a very permanent or essentialized idea of gender. And mm-hmm. then other things where it all feels very fluid. Yeah. I, I wonder if if we had the time, if we could kind of map out his changing ideas around gender and, and how they've become uh, over time, a lot more fluid, and and I think that I don't feel like that's it's changed because I feel like we he has a you know trans folks in Fando and Lise, 
right? And they're out in the desert with him. I feel like whenever he presents this um, kind of like sleazy side of town, he's always presenting everybody very uh, uh, equally, right? There's never kind of a judgment on that. And I feel like for me, it feels the same. Like he doesn't have a judgment on that. He's just, these are folks and they're performers just like anybody else. And, you know, it's the same as he often uses... Um, dwarfs in his in in and and mm. little people in his movies and you're like okay well this is and he's not judging them and he's not making fun of them in any way it's just this is part of his world so i feel the same way i feel like he's never changed i feel like he's always been very open to it that's how i see it i i think he said he changed in that documentary we watched though well he did say in the documentary about he remember he he, he kind of excised himself of misogyny right which was right around the time of the rainbow thief i think yeah, I wonder if that's related. So it just seems like to me, it, in some of his older stuff, there, uh, and I don't mean this that, it, that he, there's a judgment to this, but I just think in his cosmology that he thinks there is something essentially male and something essentially female, which is like literally that transness is kind of, and especially non-binary folks kind of bring that into question that like, well, no, those definitions change over time and they don't have a solid base that historically they've been different at different times and that's why they're so performative. Uh, but I think that... Um, um, not only does that not necessarily match what he said in the documentary per se, but in this, it feels like he's really transgressing through those things. And in the documentary, he even talked about um, discovering the feminine in yourself or the masculine in yourself and how mm -hmm. in reality they're, they're kind of more interrelated than he originally realized. And I think that was a moment where he doesn't say trans in that moment. He might not even be thinking about trans people per se, but I think that that insight about the nature of gender is helpful in a more modern context when we have people who are pushing that idea in everyday life of like, Hey, um, these are not categories written into my DNA, that in fact the ways that we understand these things are constructed over time and in culture and not, not sort of written into the fabric of the universe itself. You know? How about yourself, Julia? Any thoughts on, on the way that gender is presented in this work? Well, for me, I thought this was a really cool way to do it because I feel like you have the sexual exploration of a woman and how far could you go if you want to really explore everything, right? right. If you want to everything, you want to do it all. And you're like, okay, well, I think it would be fun to have a penis for a day. That'd be fun, right? Mm -hmm. I'd go out and see what it was like. And then you're like, okay, and I've experienced that and you're on to this next thing. Right, so right. I think it only makes sense that it's kind of a fluid transformation of like, let's try everything there is. And then that will help make it back around to who I really am. Yeah, and it, that plays into the, the final transformative experience. So the ending of this comic, uh, so it starts with the lead character attending the funeral of her father, returning to her childhood home. We go through a number of various sexual awakenings via body modification, transformations. And finally, after experiencing what seems to be sexual satisfaction, she morphs into like a phallic-shaped spaceship while alien language appears on the opposite page. It's like it's written like I mean it's it's not words it's like gone odd and hard like just just uh, consonants. How do you? I'm going to stick with you, Julia. How do you interpret this ending? Is it meant to be triumphant? Is it meant to be funny? Is it just supposed to be strange? How? how what, what were your? What was your take on this uh, ending of Angel Claws? Okay, so the first the first time I was like, uh, oh okay, I don't know what that is. But then, okay, so I try to think about what that could possibly mean. I The best guess that I have is, um, so you know there's like, the, they call it le petite mort, right? Orgasms mm -hmm. of the little death. Absolutely. Because yeah. there is a moment where you're not there. 
right? You're some, you, you are somewhere else. You're not in your body because you're just on some other plane. So like, what if that's what this is? Like you've come so now that you're in that kind of nothing space, uh, via orgasm forever. And so that's what you, you interpret the ending is that basically she is within that to the point where she's basically transcended even reality. Like it's not quite death. It's really like she's transformed herself so fully that even words no longer have meaning. Yes. You're just in a nothing space where you nothing, nothing is real. That's, <laughs> that's my best interpretation. That's what I got. And you're all made of dicks, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> How about yourself, Liam? I, I mean, I have to be honest. My take on it is that it maybe is meant to be funny. Uh, is that how you, you came around on it? Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know that I completely... I think by the time I got to the ending, I was not um, sure that I was going to get to... Uh, a feeling that I understood what was happening, right? Sure. That there's a lot of different levels here. And I felt like it was probably going to end in something chaotic. But uh, I don't know that I pictured this, which is sort of like <laughs> um, she... Uh, there's this idea that like... Uh, how do I describe... Yeah, th she's connected to something otherworldly, right? Right. And uh, I think the idea of letting go or giving yourself to that representing uh climax makes sense like there's something that feels very good about that too uh but i don't know that i if someone was like well do your best to explain it to me <laughs> i don't know that i could i will say that like while the thing that approaches her does look very phallic uh, the final image feels more like a mix of things, mm -hmm. like a like a thing that is both, uh, go, you know, uh, uh, penetrated and penetrating. You know, uh, that it's almost like in um, uh, this sort of state of fulfillment that you've transgressed or surpassed all the definitions and you're all the things at once, right? Uh, which I kind of, you know, I kind of appreciate that as well. I will say that regardless, um, this is a crazy, I mean, all the images in here are crazy, <laughs> but this very last image is so, <laughs> is so crazy that I want to know if anyone has ever made this into a poster and put it on their wall. And if so, should they be like on a watch list or something? I don't know. <laughs> the thing is, it's not, it's, it's mostly wild in context, right? Because everything up to that point, except for maybe the immediately preceding images, are, is, is presented as so sometimes kind of strange looking or a little a little off model, but definitely very realistic, right? And then ending with this like Cronenbergian mixture of sex and flesh, it's uh, it's quite something. I, I would just like, I bet if we asked Joe Dorosky what it meant, he would tell us what it meant with such flippant disdain <laughs> that we didn't get it. Like, how, how could you not understand? <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Hey, you know what? Maybe it's all on me. I, I think, think that what both of you are getting at is, is really correct, which is that this is a journey that someone is is going on to find a level of satisfaction that becomes transformative and then the transformation becomes full at the end with a connection to a kind of a wider universe and that comes through 
sexual satisfaction, like an orgasm, right? Like that is so complete that she's basically speaking in tongues or maybe even speaking outside of what language actually is. It's just so unexpected, at least it was for me, that uh, I was just like, what? <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was actually looking at at the <laughs> end of it. Uh, Liam, just sticking with you, uh, Mobius, we have him... Uh, this is very different than his work on the ink call, but it does have similarities to some of the work that we've seen, like in the eyes of the cat. Very realistic work here. Uh, almost looks like it could be using photo reference, though not entirely in some of this, uh, what we see. What do you think of the art in Angel Claws? It's very good, and I like that, um, and this might be something that people don't always enjoy, but it doesn't feel all... He's interpreting what he's being told, you know what I mean? Like, in the writing he's decided what aspects to represent in this very kind of poetic, almost mythological language, this kind of dream narrative, it feels like. He's taking that and making what he wants out of it. And I, I appreciate that. It feels very much interesting and sometimes even creates interesting juxtapositions between the different pictures. Yeah, sometimes the text seems pretty disconnected from the image, right? Sometimes it feels like it's a direct translation. Other times it's hard to see exactly how the two things fully connect. Uh, but I like that. I like the idea that it's just like, I wonder how much instruction Mobius was given in terms of the images, images or whether he was just given the prose and said and told to make an image from that. Um, I, I would love to learn more about the creation of it. But like I said before, there isn't yeah, a lot of... Yeah, that's the key. Yeah, exactly. How much, how much of it was he told and how much did he interpret? Because we know, you know, initially when they were working on Dune, it was so collaborative, right? Because he's writing, that they're right next to each other. And I just wonder if, if, if there was a continuation of that process here or if it was a little bit different. How about yourself, Julia? What did you think of Mobius's work here? I've, in my mind, I hope they were working together like that. That makes me happy, whether they were or not. I think the art is stunning. I think it's probably it's you could frame any one of these comic you know panels they're so incredibly gorgeous and I think seeing seeing because when you have someone who does straight comic work and then all of a sudden they're doing this kind of very erotic work is 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 always surprising like you didn't think that they had it in them and you're like oh cool I like it <laughs> and and I've never seen Jodorowsky go so far with the sexual stuff even though it's always in his movies somehow sure. Um, but I like that it was because there's a, a, at some point he's going to push in that direction, right? He's going to push in every direction it is. And a lot of those directions, his his goal has always been to shock you always in his movies, right? That's why he does what he does. He wants to awake you and shock you awake. And like think of his the play that we watched that he did where he was just yeah. screaming with chickens mm -hmm. and it was insane. And it's just there to, <laughs> to freak you out. And I was like, there's a lot of stuff in here that that's what it's for. And I got cool that, you know, it's it's his version of sex and it's a it's pretty much on par what, what i would imagine it would be like like yeah. spiritual sexual orgasmic death insanity i think what we have gotten from the work that we've seen from mobius so far is that he can basically do anything right i mean sure. he can draw extremely cartoonish he can draw unbelievably realistic i also think that those final images have the impact they have because they come after such realistic like uh envisioning of these characters and uh it's funny to see those last few images which feel a little bit more like what you we may have experienced in some of the stranger parts of the Incall in call in the midst of this book that is you know <laughs> something different something very very different uh so with uh, as a continuation from what we talked about with moonface and like you said julia this is a different kind of sexuality that we are seeing from Jodorowsky here. Is this something that you would recommend to uh, fans of his film work? 
it's he's always really hard to recommend because there's yeah. a lot of stuff in it that I like. <laughs> it's you know it's like you know trying to, uh, to recommend El Topo. I'm like oh, but they also kill animals, and I'm like yeah, I can't I know, right? really recommend it because of that, and it makes me feel awful. But it's also an amazing film. What do you do? So I feel kind of the same way with this. Like I there's a lot of stuff in there. It's like you got to see it. It's amazing. But there's a lot of it. Like you might think I'm strange <laughs> for, for recommending this, but I don't know. But let your freak flag fly, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Look, there's an understanding that there's going to be problematic elements. There's going to be difficult stuff to handle necessarily. But if you go in in a very open minded way with the idea that 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 you are, you know, you are still at its core uh, reading a tale of female sensuality written and drawn by two men that that you can understand, you know, that there's something revealing about them as creators, something revealing about their thoughts on sexuality. I still think that this is a very kind of important work for Jodorowsky at this mm -hmm. time, because it is exploring things that we have not seen yet, but, whether in his films or otherwise, though maybe we will see it when we explore some of the other facets of its creativity. No, I'm, I'm, I, as, a, as I said, as a, as a pervert, I, I was delighted that he finally got to, I like, as far as he, I was like, all right, let's head in this direction. I'm on board. I was, I mean, like, honestly, like this over Moonface, a hundred percent. Do you agree with that, Liam, this over Moonface? And would you recommend it? I would say this over Moonface. Uh, I don't know. I think I would recommend it to people who are more interested in him, um, as a director and as a figure, whereas people who are more comic people, which, you know, we cover all the stuff on here, but there are people I know who are actually less interested in his movies and more interested in something right, like absolutely. or Meta yeah, Barons. Yeah. I think this would, this is not like a traditional comic book. So if you're a fan of comic books, that's not really what this is. It's more of an illustrated uh, narrative, uh, and some might even think of it as like more poetic, honestly. Like Eyes uh, of the Cat. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that for someone who is looking for something more traditional, this isn't going to work. I also would, uh, I think more than some of the other things we've done, I might trigger warning this for people, though I will say Son of El Topo had some pretty fucked up stuff too, just in a different direction. It was more uh, dramatic, melodramatic, uh, exploitative. This is a little more... Um, I think easier in some ways, but I know there are people who will still find it difficult. Uh, that being said, assuming you're someone who is, you know, stoked on something that's pushing the boundaries and is blatantly, you know, dealing with eroticism, I would recommend it. You know, uh, I I do have friends who very much like horny comics. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think if you got this because you just like horny comics that this would be necessarily great for everyone i love I, the idea I, that someone might like who maybe has no jodorowsky experience right it was just like oh this is like a sexy right this is yeah gonna be, and pick it up it's like oh oh my <laughs> yeah this is not yeah this but is... i mean think about like japanese manga man that's going into some crazy i mean you're exactly right so you're yeah exactly but there right. are plenty of japanese manga that are just like Oh, the, there's lots of boobs in this, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. as much as there's tentacle porn, there's also stuff that's just like, yeah, in this one, um, they all have big butts. It's just a normal <laughs> sure, drama. But we're talking but about big pushing, butts. pushing boundaries is what we're yeah. talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. All, all I'm saying is, I've read plenty of erotic comics that are pretty milk toast. They just have sex in them. Yeah. That is not this. If if you're just like, I just want, I just want cartoons of sex. That's not what this is. There's no. there's other stuff going on here too, but I think that makes it better, honestly. So I hope other people would feel the same. 
All right, let's move on to our final comic of this episode, 1995's Son of the Gun, written, of course, by Alejandro Jodorowsky and illustrated by George Best, described as, When an abandoned baby sporting a tail is rescued from a South American rubbish bin by a dwarf transvestite prostitute, you know you're reading a story that only the mad genius of Alejandro Jodorowsky could conceive. The child grows up to become Juan Solo, a vicious gangster and political enforcer whose savagery sees him quickly rise through the ranks until his past catches up to him. Uh, we have seen the work of George Best uh, previously uh, on the Magical Twins. Uh, this is a very different kind of visual style, very much more down to earth and gritty. Uh, we talked about his, his work. I do want to mention that uh, in prep for this episode, I did check out some of his more recent work, including uh, illustrated adaptations of Dracula and Frankenstein, and I can't recommend them enough. Just an incredibly talented artist. Whatever you may or may not think about his art in this particular book or on uh, in The Magical Twins, uh, it really is unbelievable, the work that he's been doing recently and well worth checking out. Um, they, uh, Strangely enough, the Magical Twins was their first collaboration and Son of the Gun, which, by the way, Son of the Gun elsewhere outside of uh, North America in particular is just known as Juan Solo. That was which their is, final. Yes, it's please. It's so good. Yeah. It's so yeah. good. I, applause. Like, I'm <laughs> sad that it's not called that here. And I'm sure you it's for some you, stupid George Lucas reason. Yeah, but. I think you're probably right. I think people would think it's somehow connected to that character of Han Solo. But yeah, and this is their final collaboration together. I'm just going to put it out there at the front. I, this was my favorite of the three comics that we uh, read for this episode by a significant margin. I really thought it was something special. And I really connected with it on a number of different levels. While it also feels very much of its time in a lot of ways. And there's some troublesome aspects, as there always are, with certain with most of the Jodorowsky work that we cover so let's start with you julia what was your thoughts on son of the gun it was fucking rad yeah it's pretty fucking rad <laughs> it's awesome the art is incredible like i you know we've watched we've read a lot of things and and even as like as beautiful as mobius's work is this was a whole different level of it it just felt like a film it felt so cinematic uh and i just loved looking at the panels they were stunning yeah it's it's one of those ones where I don't know if you both found this, uh, but I felt like I I went through this really quickly, right? I mean, even though these are lengthy works, they're 50 pages each of four issues, I zoomed through it both because I was more connected with the story that was going on, but just something about that art was just like pulling me forward. It was mm -hmm. very, very expressive. Uh, and I think maybe I enjoyed it even more than the, the more fantastical imagery of the Magical Twins, which I remember enjoying as well. How about you, Liam? Uh, do you join us in our feelings on Son of the Gun? I mean, I kind of want to be the, the. I know you do. I the, knew it as soon the, as I said the, that. The curmudgeon and say no, I don't. But no, I do. I did really like it. I think that. Um, I think that the part that is the hardest thing for me to be negative about is the art. Like, I went into this a little less excited the way it started. Uh, not the Jesus stuff, which I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, but when we got introduced to the character, I was kind of like, eh, whatever. But the art is super compelling to me. And um, uh, like Julia said, it's so cinematic. Uh, I love the detail. I love the style, the way the characters are put together. Like I could read a million things drawn by this person. Uh, the story, maybe, maybe it was like, uh, I had a reaction to this kind of like what you had to Moonface, Doug, and that I felt like this is so this to me is so Yodorowsky that it's <laughs> it's almost it, it it almost felt a little bit like 
all right, all right, I get it. This this is your Rowski. I get it. Like the the idea of the master brought low, uh, coming from the slums into this position of authority. Uh, uh, even the like sacrifice for the for the people. All these things felt very kind of in the vein of El Topo to me. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah. I think I think at an intellectual like I guess part part of the reason I'm a little less excited than you guys is that while I think this is a much better story than Moonface at every level, I just found myself trying to figure out Moonface and I was less interested in this at a thematic level. Sure. Right. Uh, I was more just into it because it was cool. Uh I will say um just like with Son of El Topo um, the the sexual violence that starts it off when they're just driving around in the car, uh, uh, finding finding women to assault, that that was a little hard for me just because it, it feels very casual, but mm-hmm. it, it but it's part of a whole uh, narrative of this character becoming the worst of the worst, and I kind of liked when I realized that's the sort you know we've seen with El Topo, he's a master of death, but like. He's not necessarily a villain per se. He's just a very qualified master of death, right? Uh, in other characters we've seen, they become masters in different ways, like the Meta Baron and stuff like that. This is the first time where I felt like his mastery wasn't just of death, but of just being a despicable piece right. of shit. Mm-hmm. And it, he has to sort of get to this point where he lets that go. Even the way he starts his turn to this like sacrificial character, he's still trying to trick people. And then slowly he changes that until he becomes this other thing, right? And I liked that eventually. And I found that really compelling. I I wasn't quite as uh, engaged, I think, thematically with it. And I think what I would like is something that I found kind of challenging on both levels, which I guess is kind of how I felt about Son of El Topo. But remember, Son of El Topo wasn't finished, so I didn't have a full narrative to understand. I just felt like it was going in a direction that felt just as narratively engaging, but had a few more themes under the surface that I was interested in, and I didn't feel quite the same about this one. That being said, I'm sure a lot of people don't care about that. And uh, when it comes to just the the engagingness of the comic itself, like how pulled in I was by it. I think this might be my favorite thing we've read that he's connected to just in the execution of it. I'm glad that you brought up Sons of El Topo, by the way. The third volume was just, uh, I believe, just published. Uh, right, about yes, a, yes. Yeah, about a week ago as of the time that we're recording this. On the next episode, I'm hoping we might be able to even revisit that just to follow up, though it's been so long since we read the first volumes that I'm probably going to have to reread the whole thing. At the very least, we will return to that at some point. But yeah, Sons of El Topo seems to be the thematic and visual style that is most directly connected to this work. Um, I, I, you are exactly right. It doesn't necessarily have a lot of the same spiritual depth or uh, references, maybe that's what I'll say, uh, that we see in some of the other work that we've covered, though this is obviously an explicitly spiritual oh, yeah. work oh, as yeah, well. Yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah. Is it the most accessible Jodorowsky comic? I mean, I was not surprised to find out that this had been already, there was an attempt to turn this into a movie. There's a script that exists for uh, Son of the Gun um, that was made in the late 90s. Uh, it was never made into a film, obviously. What we found out, uh, what I discovered from an interview from just a few years ago, 
uh, right before, like just a few hours before we started recording this, and maybe this is common knowledge in some circles, but it wasn't to me, was that this was meant to be a film. That Jodorowsky himself was try- was going to make this specific work into a film starring his son, Teo, but after his son passed away, uh, he decided to make it into a comic instead. He couldn't make the movie out. He just felt like he couldn't. But it's definitely, you know, we use that word cinematic because it was obviously designed to be a movie. Just sticking with you, Liam, do you think of this as one of the more or most accessible of the comic work that we've seen so far? I mean, yes, in the sense of there aren't as many sort of confusing violations of reality. Uh, but, you know, I still think it's accessible to people who are already primed to be stoked on, you know, Yodorowsky. I think, right, right. I think you have to already think this is cool. But yeah, if you already think this is cool, totally. I don't think there's anything here uh, that is like, Oh no, I didn't get that. Like I think it is all pretty clear. Uh, I think there's still something going on with this turn and his his kind of healing at the end in the village that that that's challenging in its own way. And there are people who will find that challenging, but there's less confusion here in a way that, that for for a lot of people, I, I I think. Julia, do you think this would have been better off as a movie? I feel it works either way, and it's it's strange. I mean, I, I now that you, I mean, he said this is supposed to be Teo, but I look, I felt it looks like Eden, uh completely. I thought it was him the whole time. I was like, oh, he just like took pictures of Eden and like they put him in the thing. But I guess uh, it was Teo, so that was very sweet then that he this could be kind of. Um, bringing him back to life for a while. I yeah, I, I don't think I mentioned that explicitly, but yes, the the actual character of Juan Solo, the imagery of it is based on Teo, so that he still put his son into the work, even though he had passed away. Uh, thanks for mentioning that. Uh, no, it feels like that would be very cathartic. Uh, and I think, you know, most of the Jodorowsky stuff we have, it has the same kind of theme, right? You have somebody who is... Uh, dealing death or somebody who is unenlightened that's seeking enlightenment and then at the end that then maybe maybe they'll reach it right that's kind of the theme and I think I like that because it's something like okay you go to a Wes Anderson movie and it's like okay there's going to be some grief involved probably some father issues like you kind of know what you're getting into and the more Jodorowsky you can be the better and so this is like okay I see where it is and of course um, through my Stephen King lens as I do it also feels very gunslinger so you say okay I'm like this like modern day gunslinger who's going around and learning how to become a better person and also it has a little bit of you know it plays with South American politics and and, and, you know and then the corruption which is again themes that we've seen in a lot of his work as well but it's also, and this is something that we said right from the beginning of this discussion, it's really cool, you know? And it feels cool in a way that, you know, when it was published, it, it, it was that era of, of Pulp Fiction and the, the post-era of that. You can see why in 1998 they would have tried to take this work and turn it into a cool movie, even if Jodorowsky wasn't at the helm. Um, and, uh, and even though it does have some work that I bet... Uh, sorry, some elements of it that I bet would have been significantly toned down. It does ask a lot of the audience in regards to its the audience's willingness to both connect with the lead character and forgive the lead character. But we'll talk about that in just a moment. What did you think about the framing of the story? It starts with this character who we've seen, you know, rise up in the in the this gangster world to be this almost unkillable gunslinger. But before we get into all of that, we see him literally getting crucified. Uh, as Juan the Saint being crucified, and then it going into flashback 
uh, talking about how he got there. And it, you know, as the story was going through, it almost seemed more and more unbelievable that that is where we were going to end up. How about you, Julia? What did you think of that as a uh, structure with the the flashback uh, from the the one on the cross? Well, that's always fun, right? Like a, a lot of horror movies start that way, right? Where you start really, really harsh, and you're like, "Oh, okay, how do we get to that?" Right? It's almost like, a cliche, that... right? I bet you're wondering how I ended up like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. Uh, but you know, it, it's funny because, as I mentioned, the, the kind of religious overtones in Moonface really bothered me, and it does to some degree in here too. But I feel like because this is so, like, in my mind, El Topo adjacent, when he becomes mm-hmm the holy man at the end of uh, El Topo, I don't feel like it's a Jesus religious thing. I don't know. It becomes like just a general spiritual thing. So to have him actually crucified as Jesus seems to be, I don't know. There's something about it that it doesn't bother me as much as it does in Moonface. And I don't know why. And I also, as, as I mentioned uh, with the gunslinger, like in the gunslinger, he's, he's terrible. He's an awful person. Of course he's mm-hmm. killed a bunch of people. And like, that's his deal. That's what gunslingers do. So when he's being ferocious, I'm not turned off by it or surprised by it. I'm like, that's what his job is. That's what he knows. So I don't like fault him for it necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I do think that the level of ferociousness that's on display here, um, and the m- amount of redemption we're supposed to get from this character was something that I did struggle with a little bit. And it kind of felt like in this interview, by the way, I should mention that the interview that I'm referring to is by Daniel Calder uh, from the Los Angeles Review of Books, where he talked to Alejandro Jodorowsky a few years ago. And he mentions, you know, he seemed to talk about how the darkness of the story and it, it Jodorowsky even had to kind of correct him a little bit uh, about that because the, the interviewer says that there's not a lot of healing going on. And Jodorowsky says, yes, there is. In the end, when he arrives in the village, he's caught in the game. He wants to lie and to steal from the people, but he gives his life for a town of poor people. No, no, he changed. So he wants to make it very clear that this is about a character's evolution, about the change of that character. And though we kind of see that, especially with kind of the ghostly visions that are on display, which, by the way, is probably that kind of comes out of nowhere. But I really like that. And uh, how all the ghosts are used in this uh, in this work, that uh, that it's um, that that change is supposed to be like a real thing, not just uh, a, a, an image that the guy is trying to um, portray to the world. Liam, what did you think of the idea of this character of Juan Solo, both as a Jesus figure and the potential for him to be redeemed? Well, I um, I have kind of mixed feelings about it because I think if I just think about it narratively, I don't love it because it, it, it kind of plays into this idea of like holy sacrifice. Like it doesn't matter how bad he is. Right. All that one great thing, right? One big he, yeah, yeah. yeah, he gave his life for these people. I do like it because if you take it if I think about the narrative as a whole and I kind of abstract out the idea of vulnerability. So uh, Juan Solo is so cruel, and that cruelty gives him power because he is so singular. Only one person has ever shown him kindness, and that person was destroyed, right? And yeah. he was destroyed by a cruel world. And so what Juan Solo learns is to mirror that cruelty and to himself become cruel and to not have vulnerabilities. And that's why he never makes mistakes. And then he's put in this situation where suddenly he has vulnerabilities. He has places where he is connected. And then 
the story gets revealed that he is even more connected than he realized because it is not just his connection, the his opening he's given uh, the boss's wife, but it turns out this is his mother and the boss is his father and mm-hmm. that it, in fact and he that he's finds, murdered his sister. <laughs> yeah, and and he finds himself on the run with his mother and truly brought low. And I think the mistake would be, and I think some people might make this mistake to see him at his lowest in the village when he's pretending to be the saint. Once mm-hmm. he decides to pretend to be the saint, even though he's trying to, as Yodorowsky put it, play the game, that's in the direction of something else. His lowest is actually in the brothel where he yeah. is just so numb and so drunk and he's really become like, I mean, there's literally a shot of him in a pig pen as if yeah. we weren't getting the prodigal son <laughs> references already. I'm not, can I, can I ask a question about that? Yeah. I'm not really clear what happens to him in that moment. Because we have him going with his mom to the brothel, and she's like, I know how to make us money. And she becomes the town brothel uh, star. But then why does he stay? Where where does his drive go? I was just going to ask both of you the same thing, which is that it seems like, okay, we just need a little bit of money before we can move on. And why are they sticking around for what seems like months and months? (laughs) You think at some point he would just be – I guess, you know, there's some – because of all the – weird connections with her being his mother at that point and that being revealed and there that he feels somehow tied to her but that feels like it it doesn't really get explained fully in that but i but i do like one of my favorite frames is in the brothel where you have uh clara the daughter who is the ghost just sitting by idly in a chair looking bored and the 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 thought of like you have to be a ghost but you have to follow this person around wherever they go and just sit (laughs) and watch whatever they do and how boring that would be and also how disturbing if you're watching your mother doing this and your brother being a sad wagon making him wag his tail to the beat of the music come on i feel like and that's the part that i you know even though he knows it's his mother like he's killed his sister so i feel like his character wouldn't do that i feel like he would never allow himself to be cowed that way and he would brutally shoot anybody who had that idea so it seems a little out of character for me this moment man i could not disagree with you two more i think he is only so All the strength he's showing earlier, the whole point of the book is that this person that's so cool isn't cool. He's literally shit. He literally sucks. He is the worst ever. And he thinks he can be this person because he has no connections. Only one person ever cared for him, and that person is dead. So he can just be inhuman. And then, bada bing, bada boom, he is human. He has a mother and a father. He has a sister. He has connections. He is a person, and that fucking breaks him. And now he is broken. And I think that is... To me, that reflects the reality of most violent people, that they are so violent either to protect the people they love or the things that they love or because they don't believe they're human anymore and they feel disconnected from the world around them. And so that's how he can be this scary ass motherfucker, because he is a man without connection and thus without vulnerability. But that's not real. He is completely vulnerable. And so by the time we see him again, he's already given up. He has nothing to care about. He it just feels like there's nothing for him and you know he finally can leave when uh he when um oh he sees he he sees that they're in danger because the the hitman guy comes and he's like okay i gotta i gotta get back on my stuff and then his mother leaves him and i think that is the reality that he felt because she is his mother, that he must be connected to her. He's never had that before. He's never had that connection. And his her ghost 
kind of sets him free. And that's how he can start down a different path because he just doesn't understand that for me, I can understand how I would leave that situation because (laughs) I have a mother and she has let me down many times and, (laughs) and I can easily, I mean, that doesn't mean I don't love my mom guys, but you know, I, she's a real person. This is not a real person yet for him. He is disappointed in her, but she is an idea that has suddenly become real it's almost like she's a holy figure to him, and yeah, how she's can not, he not even just a mother, right? She's also a sexual companion. She's someone yes. that, yeah, he's he's connected with her as both companion and uh, mother son. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. It's just the the switch in the book from him, you know, being portrayed whether hollow or not as being this ultra cool killer to being this person who's being kicked around like a dog and treated like a pig. It just seems like it. it there's no transitional state for that. I yeah, it just to me it, it made sense because I think in this is the one way where I kind of did see these larger themes is that this is still a bit of a uh, allegory. Also, right. it reminded me of westerns, like yeah. the gunslinger. The, yeah, the, yeah, the, <laughs> the, the the western. The, you know, the 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 on the run gunslinger who finds himself hiding for so long that he's forgotten who he is. Right, like right. that seems like a real theme in 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 these sorts of movies. Um, I I also thought it made sense to me then this thing where he's so lost in the desert that he has to give up the diamonds because that's the other thing kind of keeping him here is this idea of like, well, once I get those diamonds, I'll be set for life. Right. right. And then he eventually just has to give them up because it's like, these are useless to you. What the fuck is wrong with you? That's right. Just get the the desert. Get the the donkey and get the water. Come on, man. (laughs) And the person who takes them isn't even. Like, isn't really trying to con him. He he doesn't think that they're valuable either. It's just oh, they could make you know a, a, a colored jewelry or something like that. It it doesn't it doesn't have the value to him because something is only worth what someone's willing to pay for it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's so it's just part of his transformation. We've talked a little bit about the art already. Uh, I think the art in this is absolutely unbelievably great. But one of the things that really makes it great is the coloring on it, which really kind of reinforces that Western feel, the yellows and browns in it. Uh, uh, Julia, you've already mentioned the art a little bit. Talk a little bit about George Bess's work in this. Yeah, it's just thrilling, really. Just kind of every frame is really telling. And I feel like he draws faces so well. Like All the people that are in the, the gang and all like toadstool and tutti frutti and all those people yeah, like, yeah. just they just they they like, these really kind of very because it like when when he says he uses photos of Teo to make this like it feels like he has photos of real people and then just kind of distorts them a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, they do feel very real, and I I thought the coloring and sometimes they go different. They do black and white sometimes, and then they go back to color and. Um, it's like it's like in a film when they do that when all of a sudden there's a sequence in black and white in a color film and you're like ooh <laughs> that's exciting <laughs> it reminded me a little bit uh, not to compare it to American work but um, the Steve Dillon's work on Garth Ennis's Preacher which has a lot of similar themes to this actually but also a lot, a lot of the detail work I think is very similar as well even though Steve Dillon has a very specific way of drawing faces that George Best doesn't maybe some people would be offended by that but I actually really like the art in Preacher Liam what did you think of George Best's art and the coloring in this work it's really impressive I also want to point out that and uh, you know I don't remember if this was part of Preacher but this is definitely part of this where there's a lot of breaking of the frames, you know? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, like... Absolutely. Frames where you'll have a frame on the left and two frames on the right, and then between them, an image that actually cuts across them, sort of setting up a background image, you know? Um, there'll be a lot of, like, uh, uh, word bubbles breaking out of frames and 
playing into other frames. There'll be a lot of like the drawing kind of breaking out of the box and establishing a mood with the box still visible over top of it. Just a lot of interesting uh, innovation stuff. Not a whole lot of full page splashes, which I think is good because the few times where you do get a larger image, it's then used very effectively because it's not mm -hmm. something you see right. all the time. Um, and yeah, I gotta agree. The faces, th not that like th all the other aspects aren't themselves really great, but I think the faces are kind of transcendent in the ways that they tell us maybe not everything, but almost everything we need to know about the characters mm -hmm. is represented in the details of their faces. Yeah, I mean, I think that the art serves the story about as perfectly as you could hope for for something like this, and it's it is pretty amazing that this is the same artist that did. Uh, the magical twins not that again we not that that art is bad or anything it's just so different from what we see here yeah very really impressive stuff uh just uh, before we finish off here liam would you like to see someone turn this into a movie now i i don't have a lot of faith that people would mm. be able to handle it well especially in an american context you know uh but Assuming it was a director that we felt like wouldn't shy away from all the different aspects of it, yeah, I think it could work. Um, I don't know who could play uh, Juan Solo though. Like, I, I think that it would it would maybe have to be uh, an unknown because I don't think there's anyone <laughs> I could think of that would. Do I can think job. of one person. He just happens to be a musician and the son of Alejandro Jodorowsky. Yes. Oh, sure. That's true. That's true. That's <laughs> it's true. the only no. person. It's got to be. Think that, I, it's got to be him. That, I, Unfortunately, I think the character should probably be a little younger than uh, Adam is at this point. But hey, it could probably still work. I that's I mean, if it was directed by Jodorowsky and starred him <laughs> or Brontus, I'll take Brontus because Brontus also fucking amazing. I just, I just, it's so hard for me to think of Jodorowsky's work being interpreted by other people because he's so specific in his vision. You know, it would be like Wes Anderson writing a, a script and then sending it off for somebody else to do. Like it wouldn't, it would get lost in translation, not literally, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's so, definitely got to be someone, hopefully, that really appreciates the work. But I mean, it's also, I, w I would worry that someone would try to make it too realistic. And for a story where a baby sucks on the barrel of a gun as opposed to a nipple, that is, you know, this is obviously something that's meant to be very stylized. And I wish, if this ever is turned into a film, I hope that someone really appreciates that. Uh, Julia, any final well, thoughts? Like, on, oh, sorry, please. So, um, any final thoughts? Yes. Um, I would very much recommend this one. This mm. one was uh, incredibly enjoyable, and I had a lot of fun reading it. Um, and, and, and you know, for me, uh, as, as I mentioned, my, my boy, Stephen King, um, the guy, I never understood Westerns, and I ever, never understood this kind of archetype until I sure. read the gunslinger and the, the dark tower series. And now I'm like, uh, now it feels like that the Western key has opened to me. And now <laughs> if, I, if I look at it through Roland's eyes, Stephen King's eyes, I'm like, Oh, I understand that now. So this feels the same to me. Like, okay, he's this person that's going to have this very hard, uh, interior, you know, heartless kind of thing. Then, and, and then throughout the thing, well, it turned into something more transcendent. So, um, I would highly recommend 10 out of 10. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually a huge fan of classic American Westerns and spaghetti Westerns just generally. And even as someone who's kind of been entrenched in that for a long time, I really just enjoyed this, not just the archetypes, but also the fact that it goes to weird places, that it still has that Jodorowskian edge to it, that it feels like one of his works through and through, while at the same time being a little bit easier to kind of get a handle on. Uh, it's so strange to even talk about accessibility when we're talking about a, a book that has so many 
very strange things happen throughout it. Just the very fact that the character is raised by this transvestite prostitute who gets wheeled into a, a church and explodes. As Poor Half Pint. I felt bad for Half Pint. But hey, that's, the, that's, again, that uh, Joe Dorowski, uh, he's, he's a hard man to recommend. Uh, you yeah. got to be you got to be in the know and, and, and give people fair warning, which I think we always do. Well, we're, the, the secret handshake is here for you, listener of Jodowski today. We highly recommend, I should say, Julia and myself highly recommend Son of the Gun. How about yourself, Liam? Any final thoughts? I mean, yeah, I agree. Definite recommendation. That's it. You got to read it. And <laughs> I, I mean, don't be wrong. Like, I, I, I obviously all the same conditions that we would put on lots of stuff with him. But if you're this far in this fucking podcast, you're already on board with a lot of stuff. This feels very much in the realm of other things. And I think that the art alone is enough to say this is a must read. Even if maybe you miss there not being more, even more weird stuff, there's still enough weird stuff here that I don't think anyone would say, oh, I wasn't into it. And I think it's it's just really an accomplishment of a comic book, you know? I feel like I, it would be the InCal, this, and Sons of El Topo would be the top I would recommend. Mm, I'd have to think about that. That's something that I think we'll return to as we explore more, because I, I did like the Meta Barons so much, and there's so yes. much of it, but it's I so I guess I think of huge, Meta Barons right? under the Alcal Incal banner. <laughs> like, it feels like it's the same Jodoverse, you know? Sure. Well, I mean, it literally is the same Jodoverse, so hey. I can see what you're saying there. If uh, listeners want to check out Son of the Gun, you can, of course, get it through the Humanoids website as a hardcover uh, with a brand new afterword in it as well. Uh, published back in 2014 we're so lucky to have access to these comics at this point even though there's still some you know Jodorowsky work that has not yet been translated into English which is kind of amazing to think about when you think about again how much beloved this work is so go check it out tell your friends if you have any feelings or thoughts on the works that we've discussed today why don't you drop us a line via the Cinema Smorgasbord website on the next episode of Jodorowsky we're going somewhere a little bit different this is a Jodorowsky hodgepodge various film projects uh, that Jodorowsky has been involved in throughout the early 2000s. Basically, I wanted to move back into a film after doing this uh, literary work, comic work. Um, I don't. I would like to jump back and forth, even if it's not necessarily exactly chronological, simply because we're going to be going back to these comics again and again. We're going to start on the next episode with a French computer animated movie called Kayana the Prophecy. The reason that I'm talking about it is that there is a credit for Alejandro Jodorowsky as providing... Uh, additional material for the script of this movie, Kiana, The Prophecy from 2003. Uh, we're going to mostly focus on that on the next episode, but we're also going to talk about some of Alejandro Jodorowsky's acting work, including in the film Music Content from the year 2005, where Alejandro Jodorowsky plays Ludwig van Beethoven. The yeah. movie, The movie No Big Deal from 2003, which is a French comedy drama with Alejandro playing Pablo, uh, La Paré, it says, uh, on the IMDb, at least, as well as The Island from 2011, which has a Jodo playing a character named Jodo. I'm not exactly sure if we're going to be able to find copies of all of these films. We know that we can find Kena, and I have a copy of Music Canton, even though it's not in English at this point. But we're going to make this kind of a summary of some of the other things that Jodorowsky was doing in the early 2000s before he made his return to film. Just another uh, opportunity to explore the talents of Jodorowsky. I'm also very curious to see him as an actor in someone else's film. That sounds very, very interesting to me. How about yourself, Julie? Are you excited to uh, to check out Kana the Prophecy? It's very different than anything else we've covered on this podcast. Uh, I'm very excited to delve into his work because I will watch him do anything, and he is so such a great actor, and I would, I would love to see him do 
yeah work and sit like be directed by somebody else him playing beethoven sounds amazing the yeah. poster uh for kaina looks dubious to me because <laughs> because i gotta be honest that early 2000s computer animation stuff is is a little painful and i'm a little nervous and, and i don't you... i don't know how you like you get jodorowsky just like perk up your script I, I don't know how it works, and I'm hopefully I'm hoping that we can find more detail about how that worked. By the way, the U.S. version has celebrity voices, including Kirsten Dunst, Richard Harris, and Angelica Houston. So I guess we'll find out when we delve into it. <laughs> Liam, you may will. have you have seen this movie before, perhaps. I Me? thought I oh, thought Liam. I had, but maybe not. I'm not sure. It looks really familiar. Like I I maybe rented it one time, but I don't right. know. Maybe not. I don't want to. I don't want to make people think I've seen it and then I start watching it and realize I never have. But it looks like something I've seen before. Well, when we return, we'll be experts on this film. So hopefully people will join us on the next episode of Jodowski. Julia Marchesi, thank you so much once again for always joining us and being such a great partner in this podcast. Where can people find you online and where, pe- where can people check out your short film, which is now making its way into festivals? Yes, so the film is going to be premiering at the Maine International Film Festival. And since it was 100% shot in Maine at the University of Maine in the dorms where Stephen King lived, it's very Maine. So I'm very glad that that's going to be very on point as far mm. as a premiere goes. And um, so you can look me up. I'm at Julia C. Marchesi, and I am on all of the things. And I also have another podcast, two other podcasts. Um, I am on The Losers Club, and that's about Stephen King, not surprisingly. And then also <laughs> my other podcast, Horror Movie Survival Guide, where you can hear me and my best friend talk about how to survive a variety of horror movies. We're just about to celebrate our sixth anniversary of the podcast. Oh, wow. We have uh, like 320 episodes, something like that right now. So so we, we're committed to the cause and we love recommendations. So if you ever want to recommend it, boys, let me know. <laughs> it's a wonderful podcast. Liam and I were both lucky enough to appear on it in the past. And what a great uh, you know, history. Six years. If you want to go right from listening to this to exploring that vast number of podcasts, please feel free to do so. We'll, of course, link uh, Julia's uh, information in the show notes as well. Liam O'Donnell, what have you been up to, buddy? And where can people find you? Uh, I mean, nothing, but they can definitely Mm -hmm. find me over at (laughs) cinepunks.com. Uh, you know, uh, latest episodes of not only this show, but a whole family of shows, some of which I'm on, um, but a a bunch of different podcasts over there, as well as, uh, occasional reviews, especially from various festivals and stuff. Uh, of course, folks can always check out, uh, my t-shirt company, roughcutfanclub.com. Uh, and, you know, if people want to hear our archive, Doug, they should head to cinemasmorgasbord.com, uh, where they can find not just this awesome, uh, uh, excursion into the work of Alejandro Jodorowsky, Wowski, uh, but <laughs> shows you know covering all kinds of topics, uh, ranging from actors to directors to different genres of cinema. So, cinema to how you feel about com. socks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, If only we could tie it into cinema, I'd talk about socks all day. Maybe I can figure something out. Uh, Yes, of course. And you can find Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. I'm on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And as Liam mentioned, you can find Cinema Smorgasbord at cinemasmorgasbord.com with podcasts covering such diverse topics as the career of uh, Jodorowsky, of course, but as well as Eric Roberts, Paul Bartel, uh, Carol Kane, Vic Diaz, 
Dick Miller, all sorts of great stuff over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorgas, S-M-O-R-G, or you can look up cinemasmorgasbord on Facebook as well. Leave us feedback. Why don't you tell a friend about it? Why don't you provide a, a review for our podcast on your podcast provider of choice? Every single little bit helps. But for now, whew, we've been talking about comics a long time. We need to take a little break. We're going to be back very soon with the Jodorowsky Hodgepodge. Good night, everyone. Good night.